First up in this episode is our roundtable discussion on DevOps and securing applications, where we'll cover how to navigate the wide variety of options for securing modern applications and the processes used to build and deploy software today. Next up, we debate one of information security's longstanding debates, security versus compliance, in what is sure to be a lively roundtable discussion. In the final segment, in this episode, we assemble a panel of experts to discuss the history of security and what we can learn from the past. Stay tuned for all that and more on this very special episode of Paul's Security Weekly. This is Security Weekly, for security professionals, by security professionals. Broadcasting live from G-Unit Studios in Rhode Island, it's the show where exploits run wild, packets aren't the only things getting sniffed, and the cocktails flow steady, it's Paul's Security Weekly. NetSparker, the developers of desktop and cloud-based web application security scanners that enable you to automatically identify vulnerabilities in your web applications and web services. NetSparker scanners employ a unique and dead-accurate vulnerability scanning engine that automatically verifies vulnerabilities with their proof of concept. For more information, visit them on the web at netsparker.com or email at contact at netsparker.com. The question is simple. Have any of the systems on my network been compromised? The answer is harder than it should be. Enter AI Hunter. Active Countermeasures has auto automated and streamlined techniques used by the best pen testers and threat hunters in the industry to create AI Hunter, a network threat hunting solution that does the first pass of a hunt for you to identify systems that are most likely to be compromised and scores the results on a scale from 0 to 100. You can then research those systems in depth with AI Hunter. Focus your valuable time on the systems that need your expertise with AI Hunter. Sign up for a personal demo today at securityweekly.com forward slash ACM. Are you an enterprise dissatisfied with overpriced analytics software that can't keep up with modern data? If so, then GraphWell is the solution for you. GraphWell is an unstructured data analytics platform for enterprises who demand total data visibility across their network. GraphWell lets your security team go beyond the SIM and fuse data sources to correlate and answer questions you didn't know needed to be asked. Go to graphwell.io forward slash security weekly for an unlimited data trial and gain uncompromising visibility today. Welcome, everyone, to our roundtable discussion on DevOps and securing applications. A quick reminder for our listeners, every week we record Application Security Weekly featuring Mike Shima, John Kinsella, and Matt Alderman covering all the latest application security news and research, along with interviews from some of the best and brightest minds in AppSec today. You can subscribe to Application Security Weekly and all of our shows on the network by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash subscribe. Welcome, everyone, to today's roundtable, of course, DevOps and Securing Applications. I'm your host, Paul Asadorian, joined by Matt Meow. Alderman. Meow. <laughs> just, I can't believe <laughs> I have to sit next to you all day in that. Uh, well, I'll be over there later. So. Okay. Well, that's still I won't be in the direct shot with you. I'll be on the side chat. Wonderful. Welcome, Matt. It's nice to have you. Thank you. Thank we you. begin a long day uh, of podcasting. Uh, let me introduce the guests for, uh, well, other hosts first, I guess. Um, Mike Shima is here with us remotely. Hello, hello. Remotely here. And John Kinsella is here with us remotely as well. Good morning and Merry Christmas. Yes, Merry Christmas. Um, so here in studio, I have Jason Kent. He is a hacker in residence at Sequence Security. Welcome, Jason. Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me. Chris Eng is here in the studio with, with us. He is the Chief Research Officer at Veracode. Welcome, Chris. Thanks. Good to be here. Uh, Josh, I don't have your picture in here, and so I don't know what your title is. 
but you work in security in some capacity and no stuff. Josh Corman is here with us. I guess you need no introduction at this point. <laughs> Josh so. is here. We don't even have to say his last name. It's just Josh. It's just Josh. It's just Josh. There's a lot of Josh's in security. <laughs> there are. There are. Only the one coffee, Josh Corman, though. The coffee connoisseur. Uh, actually, former host of Application Security Weekly, uh, Mr. Keith Hoodlett is here with us. Keith, welcome. Remotely. Hey, is. everybody. Glad to be back in the hot seat. Um, more special guests. James Ford is the head of security at Cross Border Solutions. Welcome, James. Hi, guys. Good to be here. Frank Catucci is here with us, the director, senior director of application security at Gartner. Welcome, Frank. Hey, welcome. Thanks for having me on. Eric Johnson is the principal security engineer at Puma Security. Eric, welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me. And last but certainly not least, Sandy Car Carielli. I knew I was going to get that wrong. Principal <laughs> analyst at Forrester <laughs> Research. Welcome, Sandy. Good morning, Paul. Great to be here. Nice to have everyone here uh, today. There's a lot of people and a lot. I want to make sure everyone has time to talk, basically. Um, so we'll jump right into it and lead off with, I, I think um, a lot of people say that they do DevOps. <laughs> and a lot of people aren't doing DevOps. And the small percentage that say they are, some people say they're lying or maybe not quite there. So what does it mean to really do DevOps? Anyone want to take a first stab at that? Don't all talk at once now. <laughs> I, I, I kind of view it as uh, DevOps is what happened when we started this back around 2000 when the internet was young and we didn't have ops yet. Because, you know, Ops was originally trying to help us become more disciplined and more useful and started to run the commodity stuff. And ultimately, we got into a, a fraction where we split brains and became one about control and one about agility. And I think DevOps is kind of the return to uh, running what you built and owning what you built and not getting too siloed. But there's a starting point for you. Josh? I'll give a couple of tiny answers. Sure. Um, in the evolution of software development, you can say we went from waterfall, like very few, very large projects, um, mostly dev-centric. Then you got to agile, which was smaller, tighter couplings, more up releases per year with design, build, test, tight loops. And some people said DevOps was agile for everybody. So pulling ops in and then later security. Um, Gene and I kind of look at it like it's uh, he's got his three ways from the Phoenix project, mm -hmm. visualizing how workflows from left to right for the entire SDLC, uh, adding and amplifying feedback loops, and then developing a culture of continuous experimentation and learning. So John Willis says it's don't be a dick. DevOps is not being a dick. Um, and ultimately, when we really get into it, the reason DevOps works is uh, there's higher levels of empathy in a demographic that doesn't usually have empathy. But when you understand the upstream and downstream consequences of your choices, you try more stuff. Experimentation and measurement usually leads to positive outcomes, and then you keep making things better. So a lot of people are buzzword compliant with DevOps, mm -hmm. but you can tell when you're in a, a DevOps shop because it's small projects, lots of experiments, lots of improvement, and people like to try stuff and are encouraged to try stuff. I think uh, Jez Humble now, his favorite description of DevOps is psychological safety, like the willingness to try stuff. Mm. Um, so is like, it, you make it sound like it's more like culture and less about technology. I, I'm in the, the camp of DevOps through the Phoenix Project you know, tribe that it was first and foremost culture. Mm -hmm. The rest of it follows. Like There's no one true way to do it. Um, it's about being better than you were before by trying stuff and listening better. So certain environments, you can do DevOps on mainframes. We found people at IBM on mainframes 
we find people doing DevOps on medical devices, which are highly regulated. They're not all doing the same tool chain mm-hmm. and they're not all using the same exact phrases, mm-hmm. but they are doing some of the same cultural patterns. I'm sure other guests will disagree. There's heavy technical elements to it in the CI CD pipeline, but it's mostly you get the right attitude, and the right culture, really cool stuff starts to happen. I think you had good culture in, in, in pockets, uh, you know, well before right. DevOps ever became a thing, well before Agile was ever a thing. And those mm-hmm. things will continue to be there after DevOps is the, the buzzword of the past and we have the next sort of thing. I do think it's a part of it. It's, it's, imp- it's important. Like, I don't think the DevOps um, can really happen successfully without that, mm-hmm. but it was already that that was already there like good companies good development shops behaved that way prior to that right what i see mostly with shops claiming to do devops is that the focus is more on the automation and the release cadence than the culture like more often they'll talk about the speed and they'll talk about the cooperation and the tool chain and how much they have automated and you know the one button deploys and um you know a lot of those companies may have the, the right culture as well but when you ask people to talk about what they're doing, like they go to the tooling and the, and the yeah. process and the automation first. Yeah. And like like Josh said, yeah. it's not always the same tools, right? right? But it's that idea that that they're automating more and they're they're doing things more more frequently. I hear I hear that a lot more. One of the most common things that was smaller batches and more of them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. So if I if I put this in the context of of business process improvement, it, it's like this iteration of improving in the development cycles, right? It's just like this continuous evolution of improving your dev cycles, right? It starts with culture, but then it's this continual iterative, continuous improvement process. I mean, is that well, a way to think about it? Don't we have to be careful, Matt? Because aren't you going to slip into what CMM did with SCI and, S- and repeatable process and all this stuff that we kind of ran away from as part of you know Agile and DevOps? Well, where, where does where does security play into both the process and the tooling? Like, does it hurt or hinder security? And if so, how in <laughs> the process aspect? And we've already established there's multiple tools and people are using different tools. Does that hurt or help security? Well, I think so, that what, what's been talked about here is that that's that sense of ownership and that also responsibility that the dev actually owns also running the so you're creating and maintaining the code and security by the way starts to sneak in there as also being responsible for security so when you start to talk about processes or tools i think that tooling helps you deploy call it deploy more quickly but deploy you can fix problems more quickly perhaps and also find them if you're doing devops well in the sense of having that feedback loop so you have those those arrows of direction pointing back from your um, deployed systems into the vulns that were found flaws that were found get them fixed and I think the the tooling becomes a little bit agnostic, how it contributes to security. If you have people grounded in there in that culture that you guys were talking about at the beginning that says, we own this code as well as we own how it's running in production, we're going to own the problems that come up into it. And maybe we need a little bit of external guidance from security to elevate our knowledge about this. But um, in my mind, that's, I think, what calling it DevOps, calling it that buzzword, helps with making the applications more secure. And I would argue, Paul, that uh, when it comes to tooling, like security's got to go way before tooling, right? Like it has to go back to training developers on how to write software securely. It actually should go into job descriptions, quite frankly, for software engineers, right? You ought to include 
some requirements for software engineers or software developers in your organization that at least you know, provide the hiring managers with questions and kind of qualifications or grading criteria on, does this person know a single thing about security? And if the answer is no, that just means they need more training. They probably need some, you know, higher level checks, some uh, peer development or things like that. But um, at, at the end of the day, if you're relying on tooling to do security in a DevOps process, you're doing it wrong already. That's a great the other point. Part of- also- oh, wait, hold on, sorry, go Sydney, ahead, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> no, I was going to say the other part of that from the security standpoint, um, is the collaboration and the communication necessary to establish that trust so that there is that close relationship where development is able to take ownership, but security trusts that, that those processes are happening correctly and the automation is working in their favor. So that's where culture does come back into play, not just from you know dev ownership, but the building of that trusted relationship and strong communication between the teams. So, so here's the yeah. thing about security and uh, in DevOps, like you're not going to actually, okay, so we talk about automation and, and how developers are building things to, um, you know, to simplify their tool chain and everything's built into CICD and so on. And that's great. All developers like are able to do that. And that can work really well with security, right? We have, um, we have data that, that shows that, that, that applications that are scanned more frequently reduce their security debt and they have a faster mean time to remediation. So there's, there's actual solid data behind that. What you, can't uh, what you can't affect or what you can't um, change from the very beginning is if, if developers don't want to do it or if yeah. they're not being measured against it they're just not going to do it mm-hmm. right and that's I, I think that's where we that's where we fall into a trap sometimes right we're saying oh well developers now own security but maybe they don't know that or they like they, they don't have to actually, be incented they don't actually yeah. want to do it like they want you know, they want to build in their QA tests, but they may not have a they don't, may, may not have any acceptance criteria around security, so they may not build in the tool, right? So you can do it, but this, the motivation still has to be there, or some some level of accountability still has to be there to actually drive that behavior. And that's that's where there's, I, would, I think a, a big it, gap. Is there a, is there a difference? In, I want to make sure. Sorry, I want to make sure everyone has a chance uh, to to contribute because we have uh, just an hour for this. So. Um, Eric, I want to I want to go to you. Um, you know, working for a, a products company, right? Having to deal with both new applications and existing applications, what are the challenges and difficulties between the two when you're trying to implement DevOps against something that's already been created, right? You already got an application versus something that's new. Yeah, it's a different strategy overall. I would say you know we've uh, done some work lately on legacy applications and things that, you know, the tool chain is different as everybody's mentioned up to this point. Uh, Typically in a legacy system, you know, you've got to look at how legacy is it, you know, other mainframes, there's different tools for that. Uh, Containers are something that we typically will leverage to wrap legacy applications up in at least a consistent runtime environment that makes those easier to move around versus a more modern app where you've got the advantage of maybe going a little bit more into microservices with REST APIs that make it faster to move and deploy things kind of, uh, you know, independent of each other. So there, there's different strategies based on the environment that you're handed. Um, but, but the overall, the culture and the process lend you to experiment and find the best pattern that works for each individual situation. Mm-hmm. When, sorry, someone else have a comment on that, John? So, yeah, what he, I think what you just said is really interesting there. So um, to t- tie this in the previous 
question together or the last answer on there. I think at least from what I've seen, most developers, I'd say vast majority of developers, always want to learn and improve and, and play with new things. So I don't think you really usually have to force them unless they're really pushed against a deadline. I think that comes back to that sort of how does management come into this and, and providing, you know, DevOps is actually probably, uh, what, 15%, maybe 20% that leadership provides both the space and the understanding and the ability to learn and experiment, which I think is a really great phrase. Um, you know, before we start went live, James was, uh, sorry, Jim was teasing me around, uh, uh, you know, containers aren't secure. But I think there what Eric was just saying sort of brings those two things together. It's if you have either a container or VM or what have you, some sort of a, a base standardized platform that the team doesn't have to worry about those things and then can do that experimentation on the application itself. Um, I think that allows them to sort of uh, use some of those newer approaches uh, compared to the older way. Josh. I want to agree. I, I'd like to, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry, go ahead. I want to agree and disagree that we have to like somehow incentivize with carrots and sticks the developers. When I was the CTO at Sonotype, we didn't talk about security. We talked about supply chain hygiene or reducing unplanned, unscheduled work. So if you're going to do all your dev, most of your tests, and at the last month or last couple weeks before release, find that you, the libraries you were using had a ton of known vulnerabilities in them. That same scan can be done in the developer IDE. It can mm -hmm. be done in the repos. So what we started shifting towards was not even calling it um, security. We just said, would you like to re re massively reduce unplanned, unscheduled work? And at big banks with thousands of applications, it's millions of dollars of development time. So we showed how, look, using fewer and better suppliers of open source, using the least vulnerable versions of open source, and then tracking which ones went where. These are Deming principles from Toyota supply chains. They were getting huge reclaims of unplanned, unscheduled work and productivity. In uh, you guys know Bob Rudis over at Rapid Seven. The, the, when he was still at Verizon, he made a data visualization to show how much unnecessary, elective, unplanned, unscheduled work there was. So developers hate complexity. Developers hate rework. We focused on their biggest pain points, and we shifted left the same tests earlier, and we made their jobs easier. No now, carrot, no stick. Just make their lives. Yeah, just better make their ever. lives easier. Yeah. And it's not. There are some kinds of security that are going to suck forever. But initially, the security people were saying, no, 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 you can't do deploys once an hour. It takes four days to run our dynamic analysis. <laughs> yeah. We call that cycle time squeeze. And it's not that we wanted to give up a four-day analysis. It's that what could be done earlier to give you some confidence level of deploy and what could be done in parallel, and then you can fix it tomorrow because you had a, a change management window. But if, uh, they, but yeah, if they weren't required to fix so that stuff to begin with, right? right if it, it made it. It makes it easier to fix it, like as you're implementing it, versus right before you deploy. But if no one is actually making you, fix no one is holding your feet to the fire on uh, vulnerable libraries to begin with, then neither one makes your job easier, right? So I, I completely agree with the. Shift it's more the heart there. bleeds and things like that. They had to do yeah. the work anyhow. They could yeah. have avoided that fire drill. Yeah. Right. Uh, but I want Frank. I had a question for you. Uh, working at Gartner, and this is, I think, a, a big challenge when we talk about DevOps and. Let's say we have a team that wants to do DevOps and they want to do security and they want to put their app somewhere. Uh, how, do, how do we weigh the waters of, is it in a container, on which platform, with which orchestrator, which cloud provider, is which service? How are we helping people weigh uh, these waters? Yeah, as far as the the hosting environment goes, um, there, there are a lot of differences that essentially take place there. So... We find that most of the organizations and most of the organizations I talk to are working in some type of hybrid or multi-cloud environment. Yeah. So what they're doing there is, you know, I think that a lot of the newer developments 
um, is being implemented to go out to hosting on AWS or Azure or GCP or something, whereas a, a lot of the legacy applications remain in this kind of either on-prem or hybrid type of scenario. Um, I think that that some, where some folks get caught up is in the lift and shift. And I think in the lift and shift where they're looking to bring those legacy applications or legacy workloads into the cloud, they're kind of just picking up the same issues that they had and shifting them to a different environment. Um, and I don't think that that's really solving the problem. So what we try to tend to focus on is working on moving a lot of the newer development and newer application, newer hosting onto your more progressive environments being whether it's AWS, GCP, Azure, et cetera, and then looking to type like remediate any of those kind of issues or pain points in some of the legacy applications before you look to shift that environment. Um, I think that a, a little bit of the par part of the problem there too is we went back earlier to some of the earlier commentary on the legacy applications um, is the entire DevOps processes in the, in the legacy space, I think needs to focus on what we tend to try to push people to focus on is the newer pieces of development or the newer capabilities of those legacy apps and try to at least start with some of the um, progressive types of, of DevOps or DevSecOps in those newer functions or newer APIs or newer pieces of the um, legacy application. So in other words, it might be threat modeling, uh, just what's changed in the app, and then working that into that legacy application um, and working backwards to try to fix and get a real handle on what needs to be done before you lift and shift old problems into a new environment. Mm. So you don't just take your uh, code, throw it in a container, and then throw it into Amazon? Well, no, most people, a lot of people do, and that's the wrong way to do it. I think. <laughs> that's what we're seeing, right? Because then you're just stuck with these same issues um, in just, you know, same issues in a different environment. And it's not really getting better in that perspective. Yeah. How do you balance security control and uh, being more flexible, right? So if I know I've got an application and I start breaking it out into multiple services, do I build a container to run that myself? Do I shop around to see which cloud provider has the best service offering and what are, what goes into that decision-making process, right? Of choosing, do I build something myself? Do I host my container? Do I just go completely serverless and use all of the services that are already built for me? What, what drives those decisions for teams? Because I think that's certainly yeah. something we struggle with with our own application and a lot of folks do as well. I think that there's a it's a it's a fairly mixed bag there. Um, culture, I think, and internal processes will dictate um, really where a lot of the tolerance and where some of the thought should go. Um, I think that there are a lot of organizations out there that do also struggle with uh, you know data re uh, data residency and those type of uh, restrictions as far as what needs to remain in house, what should be shifted out. But if you're a newer organization. Um, and you're looking to say, okay, sh what containers should I use? What hosting space should I use? Um, I think these are these are conversations that really are more about the culture and the advancement and the direction of the business um, rather than just purely technical decisions. And I think that listening to the key stakeholders and involving them in those culture decisions will help shift the decision about where those apps should be hosted or what technology or what platforms those those applications are running on. Yeah, and I think yeah. part of it boils down to strategy. Do I want to exactly. be an Amazon shop? Mm -hmm. Because Precisely. if I'm all in on AWS, AWS has a lot of services available to me that can make 
developing new applications really, really easy, but then you're locked into the Amazon ecosystem pretty much forever because once you do that, you kind of lock yourself in. And so part of this boils down to strategy. I'm locked in. Are you really locked in? The real trick here is to build the business logic, not build systems. If you understand what the business value is of what you're delivering, you can go ahead and move that logic, whether it's serverless, container, whatever, to other places um, rather than get so caught up. My big fear is that we move systems and serve systems and don't understand why we do that. There's, you know, in there, there's probably 20% functionality the business still needs and 80% that you're dragging along because nobody remembers why the business had it to begin with. It, it is much easier to do non-buzzword DevOps on Greenfield new SaaS applications. Much right. easier. Yeah, 100%. And, and if you start on your oldest, clunkiest, least nimble things, you tend to have a bad first experience. Right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's not Agreed. your proof of concept. Yeah, yeah But it, it, it tends to be. Well, sometimes, yeah. Yeah. Um, simply because that's like... They were told a, to get it's some a good, DevOps. It's a good test bed. It's like, oh well, let's 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 put this on our flagship premier thing and 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 have that be an example. But yeah, it's it's hard. It's hard with this with security as well, right? To um to to go back and kind of um, understand what you uh, like what some old crufty piece of software actually has lingering in it is is sobering to some, right? Some so, would say you turn, you know, there's always going to be negligence shops that use, you know, Azure, Azure DevOps, and they're going to be a Microsoft shop. And I think that some of those folks have an easier decision. Um, whereas, hey, we do, you know, 90% of our dev is essentially .NET or something like that. We've always been a Microsoft shop using TFS, et cetera. We're migrating over to Azure and Azure DevOps, and that's what we're going to use. And I, I think that, that some of those people have an easier journey. Uh, but I think that there's enough agnostic type of tooling and things that can be used where you can shift um, exactly w what tools or what hosting you're using uh, without kind of committing yourself to that public cloud provider, for sure. I think you're going to have Gene Kim back soon. Yes, um, January. But before he did the Phoenix Project, he did that work with Carnegie Mellon on uh, vi visible ops. And the, the top three lessons were know what you have, mm -hmm. know when it changes, and tolerate zero unplanned changes. But the problem was most of us couldn't do that in security because we don't own IT. We didn't have that yeah. the, the imaginary change management database. Mm -hmm. If you look at these modern stacks, your orchestration automation stuff, your billing for your Amazon or Azure, we have the best, we have the best inventory of our systems we've ever had it's just not called a CMDB. So every little code change, every little config change, we have a lot more traceability and audibility than we ever had before, in part because we're paying for it, and in part because we're doing the orchestration and automation parts. So it's not called a CMDB, but you get a lot of dampened chaos and variance by use of these automation and inventory tools. I, th I think Corey Quinn would have a lot to say about that. Um, it, it, the problem with that is you're, you're right, you're getting a lot of detail from information, but that particular case, you're only getting it at the end of the month. Um, and I, I, mean, I more mean the, with that. Yeah, I more mean the automate uh, the orchestration automation tools. Sure. Yeah. So I think um, I think it's interesting to take Paul's question and sort of at least the way I initially took it when it came out of his mouth um, was, do you run Kubernetes yourself? Mm. Um, and I think a lot of the things we're talking about here, there's a lot of commodity parts in this, right? So a container is a commodity item, as far as I'm concerned. Once that thing's built, you can run it in ten million different places. Should you move to containers? Yes. Should you move? Should you start with your latest um, application or project and do that versus taking the monolith? Yes. Um, I think where the the question there becomes is, 
how much of a dance do you do between um, off-the-shelf components versus actually coding things or, or running things yourself? It's it's easy for people to get into that um, mindset of, I want to be portable, so we're only going to use um, the IaaS systems from the big providers. Then we can we move when we want to because we own the database, we own the Kubernetes, we know, own all these things. But the next thing you ha- know, you have a, an ops team, which is almost as big as your dev team. Um, and, and I'm sure most of the folks on here, I know I work with a few large banks that they're, they're going that route. Um, and it's, it's, I'm not saying that's good or bad. At the same time, I don't want to take the, the fire hose of Kool-Aid from, say, Amazon and do nothing but their tools. But I think a lot of things people are trying to struggle with is what's that balance between those two things? What, what do we build versus what yeah. do we use? Absolutely. Yeah. It's the same conversations Paul and I have about our own app, right? How much of it do we want to run ourselves versus do we want to leverage an existing service in Amazon and just use that? But back to my point, that the, you create some level of lock-in. In, in so because now I've got this really cool service from Amazon that may not be available on the other cloud platforms, or I may have to uh, build my application to to create some um, uh, 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 micro segmentation or, or break it apart so that I can move pieces and parts and build into a new app, uh, a new service, but. I don't want to run the infrastructure ourselves, right? Um, so I'd rather run it in in Amazon but, with a bunch but of services. Do you want to give up the control? The, I, the further you, you push too. into the cloud, the further you rely on any cloud provider, you give up a certain element of control. And there ends up being controls that you're like, well, I can't fix that or mitigate that vulnerability because I, uh, it's I don't, just there. I, and Amazon's not fixing it. Right. One of your and we've de- seen things like that already. One of your devout listeners is screaming in the darkness at, at my private messages right now saying, you know, security requirements, threat modeling. Like, to a certain extent, we, we always focus on something that was already built. Um, one of the things I like about the DevOps squeeze is that it's forced us to, to do more security requirements, um, user stories, abuse cases, threat modeling. And when you draw your trust boundaries, correctly and when you have the requirements including compliance and audit requirements you might not get highly tethered to a bespoke feature that's only in one ecosystem right or maybe you're indifferent to what happens outside this trust boundary and the people i've seen embrace this the best including in medical device makers i'm shocked that some of the medical device makers are doing this is they are actually doing upfront threat modeling more than just hand waving or saying i i heard of adam shaw stack they're actually doing it to make sure that they um, can persist even if they have to move from an Amazon to an Azure or something like that. If you're highly coupled, I mean, one of the principles of DevOps is, you know, smaller batches, smaller microservices, loosely coupled. Mm-hmm. It's much harder to do threat modeling on these mashups, mm-hmm. but you actually have grokkable code and you know what can happen within that and you're making sure that any compromise or memory space is isolated. So it, it is an opportunity to finally do what we always said we should do, mm-hmm. upfront stuff before a single line of code is written. But back to Paul's point at the beginning, how many organizations are actually doing that? How, me- how, how often is security sitting at the front end of these projects, helping to do the threat model, defining the requirements? Uh, in financial to, to services, a lot more now. Yeah, yeah. because of their maturity. But there's, yeah. a lot of, uh, oper- there's a lot of industries out there that are not to that level of maturity. And so what that now puts us in is the DevOps train has already left or sure. the change has already left. And now we as security professionals are trying to catch up and figure out how do we get ourselves integrated in that process. That's a way gone. <laughs> yeah, I think the maturity model, um, you know, the the sort of the slow curve that goes from somebody that wants to be a DevOps shop to somebody that is a DevOps <laughs> shop uh, <laughs> yes. is, 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 is really one of those things where any point you ask them, are you a DevOps shop? They're going to say yes. 
sorta right. sorta <laughs> aspiration kind of you, a, I mean kind this, of like agile right oh, it's exactly no are you agile there yet, are you right? agile or waterfall well we right. we are hybrid oh you took the mm-hmm. worst parts of both and put them together <laughs> yeah uh, that's <laughs> yeah. agile scrum fall <laughs> water fail yeah. and and that happens all the time right but i what i think that devops really brings to us and what it really did is it gave us a point to make a change yeah right i mean Look at the OWASP top 10 for the last however many years. We're shuffling things around. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not really putting to bed these problems. Mm-hmm. And when we move yeah. to, well, wait, we're going to standardize on, yes, it's a tool chain, but we're going to standardize on this server, this type of container, this kind of database. Oh. Suddenly you have a lot more focus on those things. It's not coming at you scattershot. You're not trying to figure out what they've done here. Everybody knows. And I think that the, the greatest piece of this is, to Josh's point, is the culture. The ability to fail and mm-hmm. not have that be bad, right, is, is something that's Even really going to drive this. Like yeah. a chaos monkey. It's like fail all the time. Right. <laughs> but are, are we trading one mm-hmm. problem for another, one set of problems for another set of problems? Yes, in probably. That, like once I take my, I maybe like I have a monolithic <laughs> application, I break it up into 10 services, and now they all talk to each other over APIs. And so I've got, better segmentation and yeah. more logical representation of my application. Loosely coupled. But now, <laughs> yeah, loosely coupled, what does that mean? Now I've got <laughs> an API to secure between all of those and I've got permissions on each one of those. And so now I've got basically a new set of problems. It's a huge amount of complexity that you now build. Absolutely. And if yeah. you haven't instrumented it correctly, if you don't have the visibility mm-hmm. that, that, that you need to, then like something falls down and you're like, now the debugging is completely different, right? And you see this when you go from a monolith to like tons of microservices and you haven't really thought it out from an architectural point of view. Like that's, that's exactly what happens. The, the system is much harder to threat model yes. with lots of microservices, but each microservice, you can actually have a human do code review and you're only using the code you need yeah. instead of 10% of a big monolith that has a lot of attack surface complexity. You don't need it, most of it, right. but you're still hacked because of a lot of it. Right? Yeah, true. But, but with that, simplification of scanning a microservice, you've added all the communication, authentication complexity in this very segmented application. And so to Paul's point, we're trading certain benefits yep. for other problems on the other side. And, and so when we think about what these applications are gonna look like and how we protect them in the future, it's a, it's a shift of, it's a whole new potential set of tools. It's shift away from traditional things that we've done. That's where I see some interesting uh, innovation coming, but also s- struggles for security teams right now is how do I get my arms around all these APIs that are that constantly are communicating across this environment? How do I know what they are? How do I uh, test against them? Make sure they're secure, locked down, et cetera. That that that's where we yeah, create some. And, but Matt, that's a great problems. point. And maybe for some of our remote hosts, um, how does security keep up? and be able to threat model and come up with the things to test for as these applications are changing, the microservices that support the applications are changing, how they talk, how they're orchestrated is constantly changing, the technology is changing. How do I as a security person keep up and go, oh, well now you need to test for this, this, and this. And oh, by the way, I just found this other thing and you need to test for that. How do we keep up? Don't worry about you it. Don't, you'll be fine. Do, don't do the technology. You don't. You do not implement it in a technological fashion. You build personas and anti-personas. Yep. You build stories or anti-stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, Abuse you, cases. You yeah. Give models of you know malicious unit tests that can be run against these things. You you, you don't tool this out. You ultimately need to enable. 
the software development team to do this for themselves to some degree and come to you when they have questions, right? So, so that's the best way to actually make sure that with especially large organizations with large development teams that it's a hundred to one for a developer to security person. Yeah. The best thing you can do is build guidance and documentation, personas, requirements, uh, yeah. model stories, things like that. Well, well in security start- utopia, I mean, it means we don't, we don't exist, right? Mm. Well, the, only so way, the only way don't. to scale it is, is, is that exact way, right? right? You have to be able to build um, expertise on the teams themselves. 100 to 1 is, is probably a good ratio. Yeah. I just think it may be actually a little bit worse than that. <laughs> um, but let's say it's 100 to 1. Like, I, I can't be everywhere at once. If we talk about the APIs and the need to understand how they fit together in the system, somebody has to be threat modeling those, those changes. Someone has to understand how that fits together, right? And it's not going to be the one... Uh, security person, right? And so we're starting to see a lot of a shift um, in some of the larger organizations, and we do this ourselves, even internally at Verico, like Security Champions Program, which which is basically the idea that you take developers that either have an aptitude already or have an interest Mm -hmm. in doing security, you educate them, you know, whether it's bootcamp style or whether it's through CTFs or whether it's through like traditional learning, and you, you give them that foundation, right? And so you give them the foundation, you give some some documentation, some checklists for, you know, as they're putting together a new story, what should they be thinking about? And then you try and push like 80 to 90% of what a security person would traditionally do down into that team. So they're thinking about avoiding, you know, common code pitfalls. They're thinking about uh, vulnerable libraries. They're thinking about um, the use case and the abuse cases and, and hopefully weaving that mm-hmm. into their you know, into their process, but it does come down to, you know, what that team, you know, that this team over here may be completely different from this team over here, but you're giving them the tools to do that. And well, yes, there's some it, verification. It also later, the, right? the story in the process, right? So I think about authentication, right? And I go back to my authentication bug that I introduced into our own code. And I was like, crap, I don't have a test for that. Like I hadn't considered that scenario. So how do I think of all the authorization or authentication rather scenarios and then distribute that to all 100 teams, you know, so they can modify that slightly and test their own mm-hmm. applications. That, that could be part of that. the, that's that could, what I'm hearing. That could be yeah. part of the build chain where that test you didn't do is now there and it's done every single time. True. You, you have them. to keep iterating, right? Because there's always going to be new tests yeah, that were. Yeah. Well, if you didn't build it, like if, if you don't build the test for it after you find that the failure happens, yeah. then that's Shame on you. Right. That's, right. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. So that's, that's yeah. a given. We that's need the to keep doing iteration that. thing, right? But that a lot of times that doesn't happen, right? Um, well, a lot of times, isn't the bigger yeah. issue getting down to where it's just, you know, not adding one more thing, but getting down to where it's one thing, you know, in the microservice world, I have to secure the APIs and the interactions. That's one thing I need to deal with. If I still have to deal with legacy and all the other stuff with RPC or web sockets and all the other methodologies of communicating, it's really urban sprawl that kills you. It's not moving to the new thing. It's having too many things. Yep. Yeah, and I, and I think this drives a shift in the way we think about application security as security professionals, because now I really should be embedded in with those development teams. Uh, my skill set probably needs to be more development based, so that I am integrating the the different tools into the process. I'm helping build the regression, the security tests in my build pipeline so I can test for all this stuff. That's a very different skill set in some respects than what the traditional security person is. I mean, a lot of us, I came out of networking, you know, a lot of other people came out of networking. And so I see this really interesting skill set shift of application security folks that are 
heavily development skill based yep. that really understand how to integrate and, and bring all these tests to bear in that in that it's, process. It's really I think it, that, for security to be able to recommend architectural changes that yeah. both improve the security and the scalability and effectiveness of the application. That's a huge win. But that's a skill set that I think we need to build further in it, security. It's, it's right. very hard. Uh, I'm a yeah, chief one security. of the things that oh, Keith said early on was that um, making sure adding security onto that engineering job description but why are why aren't we adding engineering to that security job description as well? It's the like, point that Matt was both. just making. Because mm. right. um, I think it's a great point to say we as a security community can't say, oh, let's blame the developers for writing bad code because who else is actually writing the code? Developers are just the ones writing the code. When security starts writing the code, that goes back to that empathy that I think um, Josh had called out at the very beginning too. That you start to actually understand how these systems are put together, what those architecture and engineering trade-offs are. And then the security can say, cool, let's actually think through this auth problem, build some tests for it, or just do that classic uh, threat modeling question, what could go wrong, and then actually do some engineering fixes for it. My, my best hire in the last several years is a, a security architect who speaks the language of the developers and doesn't just say, oh, you, you moron, you didn't validate your input, but like gets excited as a happy warrior, shows them a much more elegant way to do this in engineering terms. And the, the hard part was it took us forever to find him. Right. Because we don't really celebrate. I mean, you're gonna have a blue team panel later, right? Mm -hmm. We don't celebrate defense as much, and we aren't farming and cultivating as many architects. People put architect in their title, <laughs> but finding him was hard. the The value we've gotten out of him is immeasurable. I think there's more technical challenges in that scenario than many of the attacks and threat modeling that we do, right? I find it much more technically challenging too. Look at the architecture of a database, right? We all want to wipe out SQL injection. Yeah. To Josh's point, is the right thing to say, well, people just need to write better code, or is it how do I interact with the database? Am I using an ORM? Am I not using an ORM? What are the trade-offs there? And can we make architectural changes that when the developer writes code, it's a higher probability they're going to write more secure and resilient code? I think the other part of that, Paul, is um, how do you apply that to the next architectural methodology or the next, next technology that's out there? One of the things that mm -hmm. really jumped out at me this year OWASP put out their top 10 for APIs. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of overlap between that and the traditional OWASP top 10. Yep. We keep running into the same challenges and the same issues over and over again. So it's not just about learning with our existing architectures, but then being able to sort of proactively apply that to the next thing that's coming and ask ourselves, how is somebody going to be able to uh, you know, apply a similar attack or make, you know, make us observe similar risk in the next architectural elements that we're using. Yeah, yeah the, the it's, it's what are, we're struggling with now, right? Like we, you, know, you have a database, you've got an ORM and you want to build an API layer and you go look at how you should do that. There's like a million different options. <laughs> how do you weigh yeah. the waters and choose the right technology that's going to advance the business, right? Because that's the goal of the software is to advance the business in most cases, right? They also provide a level of security, but also maybe allow us to move between cloud providers, mm -hmm. right? The requirements are, are much more difficult today, I feel like, with a lot of the choices that we have. I mean, you can certainly find technologies that make it harder, Yes, right? Um, the attacks aren't changing. Sandy just said, like, the attacks aren't changing. We're not even, you know, uh, 10 years ago, we're seeing the same classes of attack. And the only difference yep. we see in the categories of attacks really mirrors 
the the difference in programming languages more than anything else. Like when yeah. we look at our data, we see, oh, buffer overflows are way down. Well, that's right. because C++ is way down. Well, but yeah. SQL injection is, <laughs> yeah. is up, right? You know, All these things that we knew about like before you know, web apps are though, up. interesting though? So I asked uh, Jeremiah Grossman, right? He's on another panel, not on this panel. Um, but I asked him the ORM question. He said, you know, when I looked at some data, there were less SQL injection vulnerabilities when people implemented in ORM. And Keith, this goes back to a conversation you and I had on the show way back when. He said, but when there was a SQL injection vulnerability and they were using an ORM, it took them 50% longer to fix it. And I like thought, I'm like, oh yeah, I can see that now in my own app. Like I can actually like visualize the code. I'm like, yeah, it would take me a long time. The thing about most app ORMs is that like, if you use them, uh, if you use them sort of like the, the standard way, like you probably are a little bit better off, but every single ORM I've seen gives you a way or multiple ways to shoot yourself in the foot, yes. basically to do arbitrary Agreed. SQL. Agreed. Mm -hmm. And every like all the developers still will use those sometimes yeah. because they know for SQL what, for right? whatever reason. Yeah. You know the the, the built-ins don't work exactly how they want to, and right. so people will revert back to the way that to shoot themselves in the foot. So I don't know. I don't. I don't think uh, it may. It we're, may be a good reason to switch to the ORM for our We're never going to be out of work. Exactly. But, but if, you've got, <laughs> if you want to do whack-a-mole on every XSS instance, or you want to create yeah. a couple strategic choke points where you could do this more scalably, that's where the architect has been helpful. Yeah, I mean, there. architectural moves I like are, are like centralized security libraries, right. where like mm -hmm. you're even abstracting that a little bit further from the developer, and you're saying like, well, here's how you know here's how input validation should be should be done if we're handling like this type of data in our app or here's you know here's a, a wrapper for cross-site scripting so that if um the security team wants to change you know what what wrapper or what encoding library they're using they can do that without affecting everybody else in this inherited right and this gets back to that whole point about security people having the engineering background right you have to be able to create these tools and these mm -hmm. libraries and whatever right. languages or you need to be able right. to and i don't think they have to be yeah. They don't have to be developers, right? They don't have to have come from a development background. They have to know how to code, and they have to be willing to like pay attention and learn. But like, um, you know, if you can give somebody, for example, like the twenty lines of code that they need to drop into their GitLab, um, you know, CI process to be able to run scans at a certain time, right? And you just can give that to them, and they can drop it in in ten minutes. Like that's you have to be able to do that level of coding, right? right. Um, that's what people, that's what the developers expect now. Mm. Um, even though it's pretty simple to do, like they expect to be given, like, here's, here's how to turn this thing on or here, how's it, here's how to configure this, this thing. And so we need people that can, that can, and I think we're seeing think a lot like of that, that. Do that. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And I think we're seeing a lot of that because a lot of this ORM discussion too, and bringing up cross-site scripting, look at React.js. You know, Facebook did not create that and say, we're going to destroy cross-site scripting and build the most secure library. They created a library for JavaScript that was saying, here's high performance, here are ways to update pieces of the DOM. And oh, by the way, look at this great security side benefit it has. And now we've actually, for the most part, gotten rid of cross-site scripting. You can obviously still shoot yourself in the foot like you yep. could with ORM, but it's really an engineering-driven architecture that happens to have some great security benefits. And I think even going back to that discussion, the trade-offs, quite often I kind of shrug at, at ORM discussions because from a security perspective, thinking that's just engineering and let's talk to the engineers and say, what are you trying to do? 
that sounds hard, let's help you a little bit better way or let's give you some tools so we don't even have to talk about the OWASP top 10. Mm. We can actually just talk about threat modeling and thinking through security and that way now that, you know, it, process scripting has been around for 20 years, it'll be around for another 20 years yeah. if you're not using those architectures, but we're having much more interesting conversations by bringing in ORM or React or those types of architectural designs that are killing classes of vulnerabilities. Mm -hmm. I have two quick comments. So um, one, object relational mapping. Uh, really, I think everybody should be using it. And quite frankly, it gets back to Chris's point. Don't roll your own. It's like encryption, right? Like yeah. use the tool the way it really <laughs> should be used. And if, as long as you don't roll your own, you're probably okay. Um, and then my other comment is uh, similar back to Chris, though, it, in, to Josh's point. My best hires on my global teams are actually software developers that I teach how to do security mm -hmm. rather than security people that yeah. I teach how to do software mm -hmm. development. Right. The skill sets, it, it just naturally flows very well into what we're trying to do. I almost we're feel like we're over-engineering this though. Sorry, Frank. I said, we're, we're doing the 360. We're right back where we started in the beginning of this conversation, right? It's a culture change. <laughs> DevOps, security, <laughs> development, DevSecOps, yeah. all of this is a culture change. Um, where I, I talk to hundreds of clients, as many of you do, um, we see that the, the, the organizations that are, be, are successful in implementing this have realized and have adjusted to make it more developer-centric, right, or more engineering-centric. And that is a traditional culture change. Um, and I think that that's really an area of focus that this conversation's kind of been revolving around for the last, you know, 45 minutes. Um, and I think that we're right back where we started. And it really has to do with the overall, um, you know, change of essentially letting that security person or that that former persona of a security person understand that most of this is within development and engineering and there's that verify layer um, or there is the security professional who is going to be on the engineering background as well so it's really a shift that we've seen across the board we look at the network engineers we look at secops we look at all these folks i, I have these people coming to me weekly saying you know, what development language should I learn first? And it's like, you know, they're realizing that if they don't, if most of these folks aren't the folks that are learning to code or learning these background engineering processes or what the actual, um, you know, what the actual Python or whatever they're writing is going to be doing, uh, they know that they're kind of becoming obsolete and or not obsolete per se, but having additional challenges where they're seeing and recognizing this. And most of the successful organizations, I think, um, are, are moving this forward again with those developer skills and transferring a lot of that security into the dev board. Josh. So I think that's really, really quickly on that one. There, there's, there's sort of a split here of, of that. It's almost like capability or security maturity model in a different way. I think there's two groups of people out there. There's, there's one that every time we say to them again, that, it's a, a psychological thing or it's a team thing or all these type of things. They're like, dude, we get it. We've heard you say that for the last five years. How do we do it? Mm. So I think there's there's two separate groups there, right? Some are, that's a new message. They're like, oh, I need to get management to buy in. But I think there's a lot of folks who are like, yeah, I get it. But now I try to figure out some of these questions about what language do I use or do I use an ORM or do I roll my own or how long? Or So I think that's we need to sort of address two camps there. And that's probably partially what's going on here with this conversation. Josh, I, I wanted to go to, uh, to oh, Eric. Sure. Um, go to Eric. Yeah. Uh, on the culture thing, right? Yeah, Eric, what what have you done that's been successful in helping shape and form the, the culture to embrace DevOps and build security in? 
Yeah, it's a, it kind of circles back to, you know, the React, the ORM discussion. My favorite part about the, picking those frameworks that have a lot of these capabilities and security features turned on is that it makes it very easy to identify anomalies. So you look at like the Node.js SQLized package, for example, there's like one or two methods. The, you know, dot query method is a dangerous one. So it makes it really simple to leverage the dev tools and start to actually identify those via code analysis, et cetera, to document exceptions. So you make it the exception and not the norm. So, you know, React has, you know, dangerously set inner HTML as a method that mm. comes out of nowhere. And you're like, hey, let's stop the build pipeline. Let's have a conversation about that. Do we need to document it as an exception or do we need to maybe adjust what we're doing? So security learning about how to do that and how to play the game and not just, you know, shake your 200 page PDF report over somebody's head is a really easy way to build security culture into the day in and day out workflow and, you know, get things into tickets that are actionable instead of do things maybe how we've historically done them. Josh? We said a lot of important things about the dev part and about culture and about the skill sets for dev. Um, two things we haven't touched on at all are, one is, again, without breaking up security at all, if you look at the top performing SaaS players or the people that are the unicorns that Gene Kim likes to spend his time with, very, 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 very few of them are still using a kitchen sink mega mega project like OpenSSL, hmm. right? They've been boring SSL, LibreSSL, Signal of the Noise called S2N that Amazon made, Wolf SSL. I do a lot of safety critical stuff. Most of them have given up on these huge open source projects and they've gone to smaller, more tractable, more hardened alternatives hmm. that wasn't hmm. really a security let's figure out how to write more secure code it's saying we need to use a higher assurance smaller more auditable library interesting and, and on the ops side because we've been talking mostly dev so the dev guys they're, they're just using a better building block instead of a huge complex building block mm -hmm. but on the ops side one of my favorite things about security benefits from devops is if i find something really really bad i can change it today or tomorrow or even in an hour, uh -huh. as opposed to nine months from now, or hope that even if I put out a fix, I have customers in Safety Critical that are six years, 10 years behind on software version. One of the really nice accidental benefits for us on the op side is the ability to change. So in the Dungeons and Dragons sense, maybe I take a lot of hits, but I can recover quickly. Um, and then also on the op side, the containers, we've had a lot of oopses with containers. But one of the nice things about containers is how many times did it work on your test rig but it didn't work in the deployed configuration because Works we had configuration differences. <laughs> if you can have a bit for bit identical development environment and ops environment with containerization, and, right. and you can harden that down, those configuration errors where somebody just left something wide open, mm -hmm. those go away. So yep. often then we talk about the dev and DevOps, but we don't talk about the ops benefits of more more changes, smaller changes. Yeah, it's, it's that frequency, right? Yeah. The ability to push code, you know, every hour, every seven minutes in the case of Etsy, right? Where where they can change the environment. If they find an issue, they can fix it extremely quickly, right? Fast, yeah. And but so that, there but is that a depends there. on your level of testing. Sure. And testing we, is a bottleneck for that, if, for sure. And yeah. we've talked about uh, in previous shows uh, how testing plays out, right? Static analysis, binary analysis, the software composition analysis. Where I think there's a great opportunity is just after that, before you test it, once it's built, is inside your unit tests, how do we build in more secure and better security tests? Well, when in, I, when I wrote in the unit IDE. tests right, for my own yeah. application, I was like, wow, there's a real great opportunity 
to inject tests that are not just testing functionality and doing regression testing, which is allowing us to push out code faster, but also add security in there. I didn't see a lot of research into how we build security into those unit tests because I'm basically creating objects within my own software and making sure that it works. And that's, I think, a great opportunity. And if you're thinking about security as a subset of quality, then you're already doing that, right? Then you're already building those cases. But like that's that's still like... That's like when you, you know, that's that's further right than we're seeing, yes, being much more prevalent now, right? You, Josh was just saying, like in the IDE, we're talking about putting Green scans light, yeah. right in, right, yeah. right into the into the CI pipeline, so that you have the opportunity to, you know, break the build at that point, just like any other sure. tool might break the build for a quality issue, right? That's right, right. That's and that's the mentality that we're we're now injecting ourselves into, right? Well. They're used to using these tools. They're used to the idea that there are certain things that will break that, and they're also used to it being fast. And so, right, that that's that's what we find ourselves kind of trying to just slip into. And and of course, like anything you can find earlier is gonna is, is more likely to get fixed. And so, if you can find it in the IDE underlining as the developers writing the line of code before it even gets to a check-in point, right? But they're just, they see it there, like oh. I just made SQL injection. Let me mm. let me get rid of that, or I reintroduced that SQL injection. <laughs> right, that, right. That and then you known. you not only have a higher probability of fix, but you also have that educational uh, and that fix thing happening. in context. It's while I'm making the changes, not six exactly. months later. Mm. Right, yeah. exactly. That's six months later, ideal. it's not, not, never going fi- to get fixed. Right. Sorry, Frank. Yeah, the, that's the most ideal uh, kind of method and, and, and time to find it. Right. So. Having a plugin in the IDE that the developer can do real time ad hoc while they're writing the code, it's in context. Yes. It's something that they're doing real time. That's ideal. But it doesn't also get away from the other fact of there's going to be post compilation problems where you're still going to want to leverage some of those QA scripts or some of those um, unit testing scripts to drive some of that um, post compilation. So you could actually have something, you know, where, yes, we know ideally we want the, the developer and the IDE and push this as far left as we can, uh, but for more kind of, it, it, you still might have room for that interactive type of testing or, or, or testing to get kicked off um, using those, the, those regression scripts or QA scripts to drive that like IAS type of test. Um, so it, it could be a combination of both depending on the environment. It should uh, be a combination. It, yeah, it should it be a combination absolutely. of all of the above. It right? definitely I mean, does not take away yeah. the need to verify. Right, right exactly. <laughs> no, that's, what, that, that's all I was stating because the, there was a question there of using some of those um, using some of those scripts, and I didn't hear it mentioned, so just... Yeah, but I think it's all of them, right? There are various uh, places in the pipeline where you can do certain things that improves the overall security as it's going through the pipeline. And I don't think it's one, it's all, right? And you figure out where all those points are. It's in the IDE. It's at the, it's at the build server. It's, it's in the testing QA cycle. It, hell, it's still in production too, right? You can't give up the runtime side of this equation either because stuff's still going to happen w- when the application's running in production. And so it's, 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 a, it's all of those things through the pipeline. So in closing thoughts, I just wanted to transition to... We've talked about a lot of great advice here today, but if folks listen to this and want to learn more, I'd like to hear the panel's uh, thoughts on where do you go to get good advice? Because I've gone on the internet and gotten some really, really bad advice. And I'm like, no, that is not the way we should be building containers. That was a really horrible tutorial. It was good. It got it built, but it introduced security problems. And this is, I think, a a continuing problem. So where can people go to get good advice? Keith, you're holding up uh, some books. 
<laughs> I have two books in particular, the DevOps Handbook and Agile Application Security. These, if you're if you're getting started, get these two. By the way, also today, uh, the Phoenix Project is free on Kindle. So for nice. those listening live, go get that, and then go get yourself a copy of the DevOps Handbook. That's where to start. Uh, yeah. Gene just also published the Unicorn Project, which is if you ever read Vendor's Game, and then you read mm -hmm. Shadow Vendor, it's basically Shadow. that. Gotcha. approach so it's a, a different angle on the phoenix project that's a novel it's not a how-to but the 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 orange book that keith held yeah. up is devops handbook there's a good conference called the devops enterprise summit it's not a security conference but most of the people doing these supply chain experiments hygiene shifting left more threat modeling um most of the people that i did experiments with during the rugged devops phase before we had all these other new buzzwords um those guys are doing really cool stuff and I, I get a lot of good ideas on how to reduce complexity that benefit security without yes. actually bludgeoning them with security. DevOps Enterprise Summit does. Yeah, it does. does. Yeah, and they yeah. do one in the East and one in the West Coast, right? They're growing, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I would plug um, uh, Veracode's recent state of software security <laughs> report. I would be remiss if I did not do that. But what I'll say specifically is that there's some, there's some great data in there that shows how frequent scanning and steady scanning and uh, correlates with less security debt and faster fix times and um, very interesting findings in there around like what actually gets fixed and why and there's this recency bias there's there's some really interesting stuff in there we worked with the data scientists at scientia who um, do amazing 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 research and to answer some of these questions so um, if you want to kind of see some of the practices that correlate with you know devops practices that correlate with good security outcomes that's a great place to look mm -hmm. One thing that's not called security at all, but it's pivotal to this for that DevOps Enterprise Summit group, the supply chain hygiene principles I talked about from Deming, um, the NTIA U.S. Commerce Department multi-stakeholder group is doing the software bill of materials, software yep. transparency work. Yes, we had, we Alan, had Alan, we had Alan on, on the show. Yeah, yep. you, it's not yeah. called DevOps at all, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. that stuff is a huge win for a lot of these principles. The, the increased transparency and re removing elective risk and elective attack mm -hmm. surface. Right. No one even yeah. knows they're doing security and they're getting a lot more. Uh, folks, remotely suggestions, further. Frank? Yeah, I would go one step further. So as a follow-up to this, I think what we're also seeing is a lot of, um, we didn't touch on it. So maybe as a follow-up is actually securing the pipeline or securing yes. the infrastructure as code, securing the tooling we're using, securing mm -hmm. uh, the, the various pieces. Uh, we do have some research, um, again, via GTP um, with Gartner, obviously. Um, but there's, I mean, we have the representatives all here. So um, there, there's definitely some research, and that would be a good follow-up area, perhaps, is, you know, is that infrastructure's code and securing the pipeline. Um, and all of this we can kind of have a follow-up on, but we do have that information. Anyone else? Yeah, really, Jim? Yeah, I, I would suggest that folks consider... Uh, threat surface management and moving up the value chain with their cloud providers into uh, um, true cloud native serverless offerings because the less threat surface you own, the happier you'll be in the end of the game. And to answer John's question from the beginning of the broadcast, friends don't let friends run Kubernetes. <laughs> <laughs> but they don't let them run Kubernetes. <laughs> That's a great point. So, well, since Mike's not plugging his book, um, you know, back to a, a point that. Um, that Chris made about building security champions, um, really identifying those folks in, in your organization that have, you know, lock picking skills, right? Like that, yeah. that want to be hackers, but they're developers, <laughs> give them Mike's book and have them read it, you know, um, because it's got a really great perspective on uh, what can happen after the attack, what the attacks can look like. 
Um, and it really gives you kind of a sense of what do I need to do to prevent these kind of things. Um, and it sort of just builds up, you know, a developer's confidence and I can actually make a change that's going to be, you know, maybe a speed change or maybe something that makes us more efficient, but adds security in as a thing. Um, the more add security in aspects we can get, the, the better that we go. But having those security champions and to Josh's point of having that security architect that you cannot find or hire, right? Mm. <laughs> um, we got to start building, building more. Champion them up. Yeah, yeah. build more. Got to build more. Agreed. Um, well, Mike and John and Matt uh, record Application Security Weekly every week, including the tips and tricks and news and interviews. So make sure you check out that show if you uh, enjoyed this discussion and, and want to learn more as well. So thank you, everyone, for appearing on the panel today. Fantastic discussion. I hope everyone got enough speaking time. I think it was fairly, <laughs> it was fairly, good. fairly yeah, well balanced. So thank you, Thanks, everyone. Paul. And that will conclude the segment. Endgame's converged endpoint security platform is transforming security programs. Their people, processes, and technology with the most powerful endpoint protection and simplest user experience, ensuring analysts of any skill level can stop targeted attacks before information theft. Endgame unifies prevention, detection, and threat hunting to stop known and unknown attacker behaviors at scale with a single agent. For more information, visit endgame.com. Recorded Future, they help security teams make more confident decisions faster. Recorded Future's technology automates broad collection and analysis of cyber threat data and delivers the rich external context you need to understand alerts and emerging threats. With real-time threat intelligence from Recorded Future, security teams respond to threats 63% faster and find undetected threats 10 times quicker. To get started, go to recordedfuture.com forward slash security weekly and sign up for the Recorded Future Cyber Data. Every day, you'll receive an email with the top results for trending technical indicators, cyber news, exploited vulnerabilities, suspicious IP addresses, and more. Subscribe today and stay ahead of cyber attacks. Effectively securing your organization and its reputation requires a smarter approach. To maximize efficiency and minimize risk, security experts turn to Logrhythm, the only leading solution built solely for security teams by a security team committed to your success. With NextGen SIM, user and entity behavior analytics, network traffic and behavior analysis, security automation and orchestration, and compliance, Logrhythm provides security made smarter. Welcome to our roundtable discussion on security versus compliance. Quick reminder for our listeners, every week we record Security and Compliance Weekly, featuring Jeff Mann, Josh Marpet, and Scott Lyons, covering all the latest compliance and security news, along with interviews with folks close to challenges and success stories in compliance today. You can subscribe to Security and Compliance Weekly and all of our shows on the Security Weekly Network by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash subscribe. Also, security is more important than compliance. Welcome, everyone, to this roundtable, Security versus Compliance. Uh, to my left, of course, is Mr. Larry Pesci. Hey! Sporting uh, a very furry and uh, ugly Christmas sweater. Yep. Very nice. Very nice. <laughs> Mel. Matt Alderman is here with me as well. Hola, everyone. Mr. Jeff Mann is here. With the my host of... Ooh, very nice. Very nice. Trek Trekkie sweater. Trek the halls. Trek the halls. I approve. Security and Compliance <laughs> Weekly host. Uh, so Jeff Mann is here. Scott Lyons is here in studio. Thank you for having us. Yes. And me, us, us, me. Whenever Josh is here, even remotely, you just say us. Yes, I know. us. It's yes. fine. Yeah, I know you can't hold hands right now, but it'll be okay. Well, that's <laughs> what I figured, you know. <laughs> Josh Marpet is on the lines uh, remotely. 
Yes, As is uh, Wendy Nather, is the head of advisory uh, CISOs at Duo Security, now Cisco. <laughs> Welcome, Wendy. That's what they tell me. Ron Gula is returning to this uh, roundtable as well. He's the president at Gula Tech Adventures. Ron, welcome. Hey, thanks. Can we go back to, to Jeff and Scott? I mean, we got a Star Wars, Star Trek Christmas battle going on. We do. Looks like, we right? do. We have right? a, a battle within the battle. That is awesome. <laughs> you know, right. we, di- we did it just for you, Ron. I appreciate that. <laughs> uh, Alex Wood is a remote <laughs> with us. Uh, he is the CISO at Anschutz Corporation. Did I say that right? Close. Yeah, hey, it's corporation. How's it going? Thanks for having me. Manchutes, yes. Manchutes. Uh, Jim Hytella, did I say that right? That's right, yep. He's the VP uh, Security at the Open Group. Jim, welcome. Thank you. Hi, everyone. And uh, it's interesting. I titled, uh, oh, who am I forgetting? April. April, April Wright is here with us. Oh, because I, you know what I need to do? I need to scroll down to the hosts. Yep. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Computering. So it is two more. It is, it's a it is so hard. A scroll wheel, apparently. So hard to April computer. Wright is a preventative security specialist at architectsecurity.org. April, welcome. And thank John. you. And yes, thank you. Why am I forgetting to introduce people? Sorry. John Fredrickson is the information security and privacy officer at Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Rhode Island. And he Happy is here in studio here. because he lives and works in, in Rhode Island. Rhode Island. Yep. Welcome. Welcome back. You thank were, you. you were yeah, here. Happy to be here again. Yes. Outstanding. So I titled this security versus compliance. I thought we may be first. Are they really different things as the first question? Well, yeah. I mean, security doesn't exist. It's all compliance. <laughs> wow. So, Josh, wow, now you get the opening salvo. Now you get to answer, well, what is security and what is compliance? So security is, honestly, it's in the name. It's to make sure that things are safe and protected. I mean, I'm, I'm simplifying, but you get the idea. Compliance is there to make sure that the security people, as well as everybody else, do what they say they're going to do and meet the external regulatory requirements for those tasks, those functions, those business pieces, whatever, okay? Uh, So security is the implementation of a compliance standard as well as, uh, if you're compliance-minded, as well as uh, performing them for security sake alone. Did did you mean to say that? Because I thought you were gonna say compliance is the implementation of your security standard. It's not. Okay, oh, I, I kind of think it is. There. I think I think compliance <laughs> is a very narrowly focused way of managing a particular security w- risk that's well understood and well scoped um, in such a way that it can be, you know, imposed on, uh, you know, one, that, that one size fits all or as many as possible. So if you look at PCI DSS, it is scoped to manage the risk of a very well understood set of risks to a particular formatted string and its use in in uh, financial transactions but uh outside of that if you try to broaden the risk that you're you're trying to manage compliance kind of falls apart it has to be scoped in order to work and so does security can we all agree that we need both absolutely yes no (laughs) yep yep Scott, I just well, I, mean, I think you're going to be contrary. As long as you have contrary, I'm sorry. As long That's as you okay. have regulations, right? You're, there's going to be some you're going to have to comply with. Um, I'm sorry, Alex. Start that again. But, uh, so, so I was saying, you know, as as long as you're gonna, as there are regulations, you're going to have to have some level of compliance, right? Because um, 
people are requiring you to do certain things. Now, um, should we have both of those things? Uh, I think that that's another question. Um, compliance is usually pretty narrowly scoped. And I think one of the reasons we, we get into these kind of debates is um, because security is so broad and compliance is usually uh, pretty small. See, I, I disagree with that. I don't think that compliance, at least in healthcare, is not narrowly scoped whatsoever. I don't think that there's anything narrow about the HIPAA security rule. <laughs> Maybe PCI DSS, something like that, that was, you know, focused and written in this, uh, you know, past two decades at least. But uh, <laughs> I don't think that most compliance frameworks are narrowly scoped at all. But HIPAA is more privacy focused. Well, there's the privacy rule and the security rule. There's yeah, both. but HIPAA doesn't have teeth to it. That's why High Trust was invented by <coughs> United Healthcare. Um, well, HIPAA, but, HIPAA but, has teeth to it. The Office of Civil Rights HIPAA will fine you if you're not HIPAA stuff. compliant, right? So, As of 2013, HIPAA has some pretty significant teeth, 1.5 million in fines per incident. So HIPAA has pretty significant teeth now. Now, However, the, the, I think uh, there's a lot of missing the point here. Uh, forgive me. Um, even if you don't have an external regulatory regime, and I realize that I, I brought that up, so I will take the blame for that. But even if you don't have an external regulatory regime, you've focused your business so that you're not under HIPAA, you're not under PCI DSS, you're not under this, that, the other thing. And there's a lot of companies that try for that, right? You're still have, you still have compliance or internal audit, call it what you will, because they're still checking to make sure that the security people are doing what they said they were going to do. They're the, the verifiers that security is doing its job. Period. I think I think the uh, where we're getting wrapped around the axle is the term compliance. I think a lot of people think of as regulatory compliance, right? There is a regulatory mandate that you need to comply with, but compliance in, from a definition perspective can be: Do I comply with my internal policies and procedures, regulatory based or not? And so, yes, absolutely, right? And they. And and you can be compliant with policies that are really really stupid. Yes. So you know compliance does not equal security in that case. Correct. That's because the security people screwed up. Because who writes the policies? The security people should be the one providing the data and the focus of the policies. Literally, compliance is: Are you doing what you said you were going to do? So if you tell me you're going to count eggs. I'm going to say, did you count eggs? Yes. Does that have anything to do with security? No, but that's what you told me as the security subject matter expert that you were going to do. Well, but, it depends, but a good it depends security if you're program, a chicken farmer, though. But doesn't a good security program build in those integrity checks to make sure that if I'm applying controls, they're actually working? Well, for sure. If you don't want to fail your compliance checks. Now we come full circle. Compliance kind of speaks to motivation in that context. I was thinking about it this morning, and the word I was thinking of is watchdog. And in any organization, A, does there need to be a watchdog to make sure that a security program is executing? And do you want that watchdog to be the security program itself, the practitioners, you know, whatever the, the construct is of the organization? Or do you want it or need it? Sometimes you don't have a choice. Do you want it to be a, a sort of a third party that's more or less supposedly Jeff, independent? I want to point out that as you say watchdog, you've got a big guy with a cigar and a grim expression on his face sitting next to you. So I thought that was hilarious. Okay. <laughs> There's just Scott going, yeah. Mm. <sighs> hey, one of the things I um, where I see difference is compliance can be a lot broader than security. Uh, when you look at but some security of security can be a lot broader than compliance. It can be, right? It can yep. work both ways. Yep. And so trying to equate the two get really difficult, I think, 
it from a definition standpoint because you look at a Gram-Leach-Bliley or a Sarbanes-Oxley or a HIPAA, there are things in there that are much broader scope than security. They have security components to them. Uh, some of them are very prescriptive and some of them are not prescriptive at all, right? Left up to interpretation. And then you get into this um, interesting internal discussion, debate, et cetera, on, well, how do I interpret that? What controls do I have to put in place to meet the requirement because it wasn't prescriptive? Um, and, and now you get into this, I think, where security and compliance start to diverge a little bit in, in some respects, right? And so, you know, I, you, I can't, I can't define them as being equivalent because I don't think they are for, for lots of different reasons for scope on both sides. I but think there's a relationship there that there I want to define. There is a relationship, right? though. Yeah. Right? And I think it's complementary to the first gentleman that spoke. I mean, in, in my org, I have a, an org responsible for measuring how effective I am in executing on my security standards. And I have security operations, right? They both do report to me, but one is essentially measuring compliance of what I'm saying I'm going to do. And then I've got, of course, external compliance regulators, internal audit, you know. The and who within your organization is loved and respected and who is hated and loathed? Um, I th honestly, question. like the fact that the standards are actually written by security operations, it's not a, a love-hate relationship, right? I mean, mm -hmm. if you said you're going to do something and you're not doing it, then it's not the compliance folks' fault, right? You either wrote it wrong or you just, you know, you've got to reassess your, uh, your team. Well, when hashing out security and compliance, there are a lot of effectors that need to be taken into account, right? Both internal and external, right? Security says, we're going to protect data, we're going to protect people, we're going to protect networks, we're going to protect systems so that we can keep producing money, which keeps the business running, right? Compliance comes in and then says, okay, security, you said you're going to do this, are you doing it, right? And that compliance, again, twofold, internal versus external. Right, external would be uh, SOX, G G GBLA, GLBA, uh, HIPAA, uh, whatever you have to do from a regulatory standpoint, and then the internal compliance and controls. Right, how do you make sure that the machine keeps running? Right, are you checking the oil? Are you making sure that you stay at a certain mile per hour so as not to tax too many parts inside of the business itself? Right, so in saying security versus compliance, it's security and compliance. Right, well, if the you two think almost have to work hand in hand. If you think of compliance as being yet another, uh, the risk of not being compliant as yet another business risk, security is about managing the business risk. If you consider non-compliance to be the most likely business risk, you're going to put a lot of uh, effort into managing that risk and, and being compliant. So in, in a way, compliance is yet another business risk among all the other things that security has to manage. And along those lines, Wendy, and I love that. And what I find, especially the past year or so, right, when we interview more mature organizations on the security spectrum, however you want to measure that, right, they tend to focus on security first and then look at how much they've covered their compliance and regulatory requirements, right? They're like, first, we have to protect the attack paths and do the technical stuff. And inherently from those controls, they're achieved a certain level of compliance. What I found is the uh, less mature organizations tend to start with compliance as a starting point 
and work their way up towards security. And I think that's where a lot of the uh, you know contention has been in the in the debate is we have to take into account where they are on, on the maturity security maturity curve, right? We talked mm-hmm. about ways to to measure that, mm-hmm. but I think that's a big factor that I often find we we miss or leave out because it's more fun to debate it without it. But you're right. <laughs> And there are a lot of organizations that don't believe in the hacker as a threat, but they sure do believe in the auditor as a threat. So Mm -hmm. they're going to manage to the auditor threat before they start worrying about hackers. Well, that means that education hasn't been properly performed. Education where? And how do you perform that education? Do you prefer an aluminum bat? I didn't say it was possible. I I think the aluminum bat is more hygienic because you can clean it more easily. I I prefer the (laughs) one you put some thought into that. That's kind of scary. I prefer Lucille. You can buff the dents out with an aluminum bat. You can never get the dents out. It's such a pain in the ass. Lucille. That's all I'm saying. See, there's a good point. (laughs) Uh, Look, and by the way, I'd like to address... Uh, what you said about mature organizations versus immature organizations. We've run into a lot of very, very mature organizations from financial to healthcare that had uh, fantastic security, uh, maybe a few gaps here and there, but fantastic security overall. They were doing things really, really well, Mm -hmm. but they didn't have anything formalized. It wasn't written down. It was all tribal knowledge, if you will. And so it was fascinating that they, they were doing compliance because they had procedures, even if they were literally oral history type procedures, if you know what I mean. Uh, but they just didn't have it formalized. Uh, we've also run into smaller companies that, like you said, ran to compliance first and didn't run to security first because they needed a structure to build around. And that's a valid way to do it. So it's not a bad thing. It's just, I don't know which direction to go. There's 40 people because I get, a, how many salesmen do you get calls from these days? I've got salesmen from a hundred companies calling me. I don't know which direction to go. There's no silver bullet because I keep hearing that. What do I do? Well, if you get NIST CSF, and do a risk management assessment, it can help you guide you down, especially with the cyber defense matrix they've got done by Sunil Yu. There, there's a lot of guidance there on what you should be buying, or at least the types of categories you should be looking at. You know, I, I, I find it interesting that compliance is a risk, as we've established, if you're not compliant, there's a certain risk to the business. Mm-hmm. If you are compliant, it's a business driver. I think largely what we've learned uh, from Jason, right, on Business Security Weekly, is that if we can document, like Josh said, we've got a great security program, right? But now let's do this compliance piece. Now we've got a piece of paper, a document that when we go do business with other people, they recognize that. And that's a business driver. And that's a positive aspect of compliance that a lot of security people may may not uh, recognize as being a benefit. You know, when, when we- well, It's going to be a when we, big time requirement pretty soon for any uh, DOD vendor, right? You got the cyber cybersecurity maturity model CMMC. certification, right? CMMC. Yep. Yep. And that one's awesome because it's just level one through five. Level one's like, <clears throat> do you do anything ad hoc? Mm-hmm. You do. You patched last week. Great. You're, you're level one, right? Whereas level five, it's like, you know, hey, is your management, are you continuously making improvements? And uh, this is a really good way to measure what you're at. And it's going to be a requirement for anybody working for the DOD, which, by the way, is like most of the U.S. So it's a cool thing. And what I love about measuring your maturity model is it helps you plan what you need to do next, right? And it, do I need to implement a new technology, a new process, or what have you? And that's what a lot of the um, existing compliances don't have is any kind of maturity model. Like there's no PCI maturity model. You're just PCI and then you're done. And how do you get more funding for things above PCI mm. when your company right. thinks that point. you're 
that you're fine. You call Jeff Mann and ask for super PCI mail. <laughs> well, since you gave me an entree, hopefully, uh, I liked how you characterize Paul the the differences in organizations by mature and immature. I, I think that's probably a good way to do it. Uh, having done PCI for so many years, I tend to deal with mostly immature organizations and immature organizations that they didn't really think about security until they were held their feet to their fire for whatever reason. Mm. And in this case being PCI, uh, what I find interesting about mature organizations, they tend to be financial services, companies doing business with the gov federal government, uh, companies that are regulated at the end of the day, though, I don't think it's a mischaracterization to say that those companies are mature because they were held feet to the fire much earlier on by something that was more or less a compliance standard or a regulatory standard. Right, but there are also companies out there that uh, are at the same length in business time <laughs> but don't even know that they need to be at a mature state, mm -hmm. right? Oh, I agree. So, you know, and there's many companies like that that, and as, again, back in the PCI world, mm -hmm. they they haven't really given much thought to security until they had to, and they don't want to do anything more than what they have to do, and and so they're they're introduced to I'll the PCI data security the standards. Yeah. They want to check the well, and they want the bare minimum to get the box checked. Yes. They want to spend yeah, as little, do as little, and it's not. I call it willful, willful ignorance. They don't know what they don't know. They don't know that they should be doing more. Or they why. don't know yeah. that they really should be doing this, whether PCI is asking them to do it or not. And They're I managing to the biggest I, risk. And, and there are a lot of smaller merchants who are just going to, you know, uh, accept that risk of noncompliance and not try to meet it because they, they figure, you know, the odds are in their favor. And business is really all about not spending anything that you don't absolutely have to. So from a certain standpoint, you know, they're doing the right thing if they're getting away with it. But or, or depending on the time of year, the board is just saying blindly, we're going to accept the risk. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, that's the other uphill battle that a lot of orgs face, right? Whether you're a medium, large uh, enterprise or a, or a large enterprise, right? There's a board that's involved there and their decisions and the way that they're pushing the value and strategy and vision really affects a lot with what's going on down inside of the business. Uh, unfortunately, all of the compliance sets that we deal with on a daily basis don't take that into account, right? They don't take into account what the board does. They don't take it into account the teeth if the board makes the wrong decision, right? They're not checking board level what the heck is going on, right? What I was going to say to your point earlier, Paul, was that when we started Red Lion, right, we started as a pen testing firm, general security firm. And the more that we worked with companies, right, the more that we helped them through the process, you know, we developed the methodology of security is not where you start. Compliance is where you start. You start there because that gets you doing the basics, right? And it, it, the methodology isn't ours. Let's, let's be honest, right? Um, but you can drive budget, right, and drive what's going on inside of the business by using compliance sets as that catalyst, right? Uh, so security versus compliance, you can always be secure, but you can use the compliance like, uh, like she was saying, uh, as the aluminum bat. But that's how you end up with really ineffective pro programs and pro like um, the check the box once a year security awareness training. Like mm. that, that, what is that really doing for your company? Is it doing anything or, I mean, if, it's the difference between an actual effective program that you could develop 
but compliance says you only have to do it once a year so we're only doing agreeing it agreeing with that statement how do you trans how do you get a company to go from the bare minimum check the box mindset to we really should be embracing this and do doing more or frankly taking pci seriously as an example and actually doing what it says rather than simply doing some bare minimum to get a, a checkbox so I, how do you get the companies to move from a to b yeah i'd like I, to hear from john and alex a little bit on this as practicing CISOs, uh-huh. right it, because i think this is an interesting challenge you guys have to face going into an organization right is what is driving um decision making at the executive level is it to be compliant is it to be secure or is it both how are you guys kind of managing through that in your organizations alex i know you're you're new at anshoots but you've been at blue cross blue shield a while john so how how are you how is this playing out for you what is that driver that you're getting kind of brought down from the executive team is it security or compliance or both it's uh it's well it's security and and partly for the reasons that I can't go to the board and tell them I'm not HIPAA compliant, right? It's been around since 96. It's not I was going to ask you right? that too, right? Not, there are certain compliance standards a, where like your board's probably not going <laughs> to say, yeah, that HIPAA thing, right? John, yeah. It's, yeah, yeah, throw it out the window. But it goes back to exactly what you said, Paul, of we've adopted a framework that I can I can map and show where how I meet HIPAA, how I meet GLBA, how I meet, you know, whatever state privacy law wants to be invented next. <laughs> um, and then, you know, the board sees that maturity. And if I show them where I've got gaps and where I need to move the needle, uh, you know, based upon our risk appetite, right, that we kind of talked about, um, that we'll get the funding, we'll move it forward, right? Um, so it's really, I think it's difficult. There are some, PCI is unique in the sense that there is a checkbox, right? You have a ASV and you have a QSA and they say you are compliant, right? Maybe. HIPAA doesn't Lots have that. GLBA maybe. doesn't have that's that, not, right? That's, that's only not if you're a, audited. That's not an automatic, but, but continue. Yeah. Um, so... It's it's a little bit I think easier at least in my regulatory enforcements to to build a program around it and show maturity over time rather than having to con- consistently produce a certificate right, um, which I guess PCI is a little bit more driven towards that. But once you have the the certification or whatever you want to call it, um, you're compliant. Um, then you need to have like start working on risk management if you really want to be able to show the importance of. Um, you know, like what what's above and beyond, and why should we fix it? Because it's this much. So, what are we? What business. are the next steps to maintain what we've got and show p- forward progress? Yeah, Alex. Well, yeah. You you know, that's what I was going to say in, in yeah. relation to to Matt's question. Um, I think you know, risk management is the the most important out of all of these. Um, you know, it, it is going to, if you think about it, sit above security and compliance, and that, that's what I have found has been the, the best way to uh, to drive which direction to go. Uh, you know, talking about what are the risks, the business risks that are going to affect your organization, and then you know how is it that you can uh, take steps to to reduce those risks, right? So maybe that is um, maybe that's implementing more security controls. Maybe that's um, maybe that is being more compliant to some external regulations. Um, it, it depends completely on what your risks are, uh, how big those risks are. And then, it, you know, it's going to take time too. I've, I've run programs at companies of various different maturity levels and it, it takes lots of time for people to, to really understand the, the risk management perspective and understand what the effects can be if one of those risks are realized. 
Um, and as you go through the process, um, it, you know, it, it, it will evolve. It will really evolve. And then you have a much better chance of moving in the right direction um, than either trying to tackle it from a security perspective or from a compliance perspective. Uh, I want to direct the next one at Jim. Hi, Jim. Sorry. Hey. <laughs> um, it, one of the notions that I, I frequently have heard over my security career are, well, if you're compliant, you're not secure. Right. So you're never done. Right, Jim. Um, right. So, um, yeah, I would, I would agree with that. I, I, to go back to the, the risk discussion a little bit, um, I think there's there's something to tease out there that uh, uh, it was mentioned that, you know, some of the more mature security programs and, and organizations that have mature security programs um, have been in highly regulated environments for a while. So financial services and others. Um, and I think you know, based upon what I see, and we, you know, the open group, we do some work with uh, uh, risk management standards. Um, you'd find a pretty high correlation between the companies that have effective risk management programs and then effective security programs. Um, so I think to Alex's point, the, you know, the idea that risk is maybe the most important thing out of, you know, security and compliance, uh, you know, seems true to me. Um, you know, companies that really understand where they have risk and where to mitigate that risk are going to have effective security programs. Um, I don't know that you could say the same thing about uh, compliance. I mean, sometimes you know there'll be things in compliance regulations that are not um, necessarily areas where you have risk. Um, so I think you know, um, you know that you know that's kind of an underpinning to this whole discussion that needs to be uh, discussed. Yes, the, Josh has transformed himself into a diagram. <laughs> <laughs> this is something that Scott and I came up with a while ago. And is there any way uh, that you can that you can make that any bigger? Uh, and can you provide it as a paper target at the shooting range? <laughs> yes, I can do the second. That's okay. I'm sharing the screen with Ron, and then we're sharing with 14 other people. So I apologize. But the idea is that uh, if you can't see it, I'll, I'll, I'll throw it, we'll throw it up on the uh, the website. But the the idea is that IT and system admin. Uh, information security compliance and business all share a lot of pieces and they all converge on risk management and this is a symbiotic relationship as much as some people think it's parasitic one way or the other <laughs> as much as some people think it's adversarial one way or the other or both ways and antagonistic whatever you want to talk about realistically there's a significant amount of overlap and collaboration stakeholder ownership uh, uh, a responsibility etc and they converge, all of these things converge in risk management. And it's been said by several of you uh, uh, who said that, you know, risk defines, uh, uh, Scott, I think it said, was said that risk, uh, uh, accepting the risk by the board is, is a problem. Uh, somebody else said that, you know, compliance is, is an aspect of risk management and, and so on and so forth. And this is like, this arose out of a discussion we had with a, a, a potential client. And we went, you know, it's interesting. And it just sort of fell out of our heads onto the paper. And uh, it, it really is that risk is where all of these things converge. But by God, they're, they're all responsible for all of it. Yeah, and I think you, one you've, of got about, uh, you've got about two-thirds of the uh, cyber defense matrix on here. <laughs> <laughs> where, where I didn't does, even think about that. Where do developers fall into this? So that's an interesting one. That This is more based around infrastructure at the time. Uh, developers would be... Over in the applications, applications interfaces, yeah. interfaces side, yeah. Yeah, applications, interfaces. 
uh, as part of it and compensating controls as part of it. They're, 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 uh, it's a good question. I don't know. It's not something we thought about at the time. Now, where it uh, says where it says business, understand that we're bastardizing that, and that's a lot of functions put together, right? And realistically, it's the relationship between all of the different pieces that add into risk management. Yeah, and I think one of the challenges with some of the regulatory requirements, um, what, and I'm going to use PCI as an example, how do you do the risk component to identify what of PCI applies to me and doesn't apply? What are the risks that I need to mitigate in PCI? PCI is kind of this all or none discussion, right? It, mm -hmm. it says, here's the 12 domains of PCI DSS. If you want to report on compliance, you have to do them all. Risk isn't really factored. The risk discussion isn't really factored into that requirement per se. Uh, and that, not exactly, but finish your thought. Yeah, and, and then and I'll then I'll rip you to shreds. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it won't I'm, be I'm the first just, time today, and it won't be the last. I'm just mini ripping, but, mini ripping. But where where I think um, so, I, what I think is missing in some of these regulatory frameworks is the concept of risk management, the ability to identify where critical risks are, and then how to apply the specific controls uh, to meet the compliance requirement, but not necessarily have to meet every single thing because you may not see a risk there. Um, and, and I'd like to see more of that risk with compliance and security coming into play. I think, Josh, your diagram does a really good job. Risk management <coughs> sits in the middle and all these other pieces are influenced or, or should be influenced by it. Mm -hmm. I'm just not sure that all the regulatory requirements take the risk aspect into account. I, I agree with your premise, but risk is actually a part of PCI. It's in requirement 12. Um, where, where which, line? which line? Uh -oh. <laughs> which line? <laughs> Here we go. Don't quote me. It's 12.00 something. something. Um, 12 but, something. The, but oh my God, Jeff doesn't know something in PCI. <laughs> well, it's because I've been away from it for so long. Uh, but rest assured, it's in requirement 12. It lives in your heart. We get it. It, it does. But where PCI is problematic for most companies is, you know, there's 400 some odd boxes to check, if you will. Mm -hmm. One of the boxes that everybody likes to beat up on, and I would too, is, you know, minimum seven character password. That's one box. But there's another box that says perform an annual risk assessment. And that risk assessment should include things like the results of your intrusion detection systems, all the logs and outcomes and events that you've investigated over the previous year, the way that your systems and your network has evolved and changed over the year, the way you've had to respond to incidents, the way you've uh, had to up upgrade systems, the, the success or failure of your patch management program, your vulnerability management program, all that's supposed to be rolled into this thing called a risk assessment. And that's an equally weighted box to make sure you're using minimum seven character length passwords. So it's no Wait, wonder- Do you have to take actions on the assessment? You're absolutely supposed to. It's supposed to roll into how you execute everything that the other 12 you know, PCI requirements require you to do. So you're using compliance to raise awareness about uh, security shortcomings? You can. I mean, it's in there. Well, Nobody ever does it because, okay, I have to do a risk assessment. Uh, you know, let's do a tabletop exercise and do it for 30 minutes and call it a day and so check. And check. I, I mean, I, I agree if your security program is weak and you can use compliance to further that program, there's some benefit to that. However, <laughs> the issue that I have with that is if I'm using compliance as the driver, 
once I'm compliant, how do I then convince the board or management to then spend more time and resources on security? Because they're going to come back, right? They're going to back and say, well, we're compliant now. How do I, if I've used that as the driver and not other risk-based decisions, other risk-based factors, how do I, how do I get security done? You could show compliance is one risk, but there are other risks. Uh, Wendy and then Josh. Go ahead, Wendy. I'm sorry. Uh, what what you have to do is convince them that you know the, the risk of noncompliance is one business risk, mm-hmm. and then you have to convince them that there are other <laughs> risks to the business that come from security that compliance doesn't address. Um, and so, if you can convince them that those risks are equally probable to the one of noncompliance, then you know that's where you get your budget spent. Well, it's Josh, not only a likelihood discussion entirely, so. but that's okay. I, I'm totally fine with that. Maybe I misunderstood Wendy, Wendy but I'm, I'm going to say that the, 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 my answer is, is that if you get compliant, you, you asked Paul, if you get compliant, how do you get them to spend more money on more security, more compliance, more everything? I said resources, not money, but okay. Well, okay. <laughs> could be money. Uh, could be could people. Be. Headcount costs money. Stuff costs money. You get the idea. Your cigars cost money. And that's important for compliance because <laughs> without cigars, Paul gets cranky. So uh, we have, uh, Ron actually mentioned CMMC earlier. CMMC is not a Boolean uh, yes or no checkbox compliance. CMMC has levels and, and layers. Uh, it's, it's levels, right, Ron? Am I correct there? Five well, levels. True, Five levels. True or false would be Boolean. Sorry? True or false would be Boolean. Never mind. <laughs> Zero or one. We're not looking for Boolean answers, okay? <laughs> yeah, stop bullying me. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> Love that. But it's it's uh, it, it's the better compliance regimes, the better compliance standards are actually uh, levels, maturity levels, a uh, level, and same with security. To be honest with you, uh, how you measure security should not be am I secure or am I not secure. It's not a binary discussion or decision. It's uh, how secure am I, and it, it's it's very difficult to measure some aspects of security. I don't think anybody would argue that. It's very easy to measure some aspects of security. I'm glad you uh, brought that up, Josh, because you know in our you know, kickoff questions. It was defined secure and compliant. And then we immediately started talking about security. Secure and security, I think, are two distinctly different things, if if nothing else at the, the belief level, the conception level. No, I, I like that. That's actually a really good point. And being compliant and uh, performing compliance are sometimes two very different things. Because, dear God, we found some people really screwing it up. No, they are uh, two different things, period. Yeah, and I think true. one is more m- mythical. I think the idea of secure is what most companies and organizations, and even a lot of people in our industry, think is there's this belief that we get to this state where we can't be breached or compromised. You know, everything is protected, everything is secure. Whereas security, I think most of us would agree, if not all of us would agree, implies the ongoing nature. The we're never done. We have to be diligent and vil- vid- vigilant and there's always something else to do that security is much more the process the ongoing all it is doing is adjusting the likelihood of a threat to cause an impact to your organization it goes Uh, back to the monitor that's a constant process uh right so you should constantly be reevaluating because the risk of something one day could change the next day you have to take in all those factors and then reprioritize based on the reassessment of risk. Absolutely. It goes back to what's been pounded into every security and compliance person's head. The people who do the defense and the security work have to be right 100% of the time. 
Whereas the bad guys only have to be wrong once. But we proved that theory wrong on the previous. <laughs> yeah, you missed the previous, <laughs> no, no, no. previous one. I, I'm sure you did. <laughs> Thank you for proving that wrong. But unfortunately, until the previous episode, right? Uh, this is what this has been the cadence that has been fed to us, right? And everybody buys into it. So how do you get out of that? Oh, we changed that in the previous segment, <laughs> right? Well, it's kind Bill, of Bill so you're saying watch the previous segment yeah, again. Bill, <laughs> Bill established it. Uh, see if I can capture this correctly from Bill. Is that attackers can be wrong, 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 and then right, right? But defenders can be wrong or missing stuff as long as you accept that in the risk. That's okay. Well, we're humans. Right. We all miss stuff. That's or it's stuff that may not matter. It, instead of trying to be secure, you try and manage risk, and you know as part of the risk equation that there is a probability that something will happen. And if everyone is on the same page about uh, the likelihood and, and impact of those risks, then then you have to accept that you know, at some point some of these risks are going to be realized. Yeah, and focus on Absolutely. resiliency. That's why I like the NIST CSF. Well, like, out of the five foundations, two are dedicated to I've been breached, right? right. Respond mm-hmm. and recover. And it's, very, it's super important, right? And yeah, we forget about aspects of the recovery domain sometimes i i you know we it, it's just one of those things it's kind of an afterthought when we're out building I, I i've seen this a lot is we're always about trying to protect the environment we're trying to prevent attack um so we're not thinking about recovery you know look at all the ransomware attacks this year and, and how many people were not in a position to recover right sometimes we forget about that domain which is why i love that domain in the nist cybersecurity framework so we don't forget about it but a lot of organizations don't put the efforts into aspects of that recovery domain when something actually goes wrong. It's not as fun as buying a new endpoint agent. Of course, it's not <laughs> sexy, right? That's true. Who, who, who wants to deal with backups and recovery procedures and Yay, all this other shelfware. stuff? Yeah. Yeah. Let me say it. Yay, shelfware, right? But it, it, to everybody who's on the cast, right, the, the question that I have is using compliance and security, right? How do you go, how do you go about identifying your unknown unknowns? right? Using the two methodologies, right? And of course, there are a lot of frameworks that we can fall back on. It's really easy to say, well, you know, gee, go out and do everything next, right? What's the methodology behind figuring out your unknown unknowns? Well, that's simple. We have a whole thing on a pen test, right? Coming up later. Yep. Right, that's that's an easy answer. Go deeper. So I, if you're looking at unknowns, we will at, and what, we're going to talk about ERM some more, like, you got to start at the what does the business want to do, right? You got to look at what the business wants to do from a strategy perspective, what it takes to execute that, and then you identify the risk. And then you eventually could get to an unknown, right? And then if it happens to be a cyber risk part of that, then you've got to figure out how to measure that with, you know, risk indicators, either lad- leaking or lagging, leading leading or or lagging right? Yeah. And, and mm-hmm. make sure that <laughs> when you measure that, then you can try and get into some things that you might not have seen before. So recently. Can you more alcohol, please? Yeah. <laughs> not on film no for the record yes Jeff please PCI 12.2 <laughs> is where well, you, where you oh, find the risk analysis uh, <laughs> so, I can't let, let I couldn't let that hang so I think one of the problems um, that we have in security in the wor- security world is that risk management isn't sexy it's not something that people are talking about at like hacker conferences or um, even 
like some of the bigger security conferences, um, it, people aren't getting into that field. They want to do, they want to break stuff and they want to, um, you know, they want to come up with the next O-Day. But we need more people doing risk management that understand security, not just the risk management people that want to get into spreadsheets and work on finance or whatever, but like security minded risk people yeah. are well, not out of curiosity yeah. then based on that Rob for our April. practitioners. Well said, April. Thank you. <laughs> John, Alex, where is risk done in your organization? As of November, risk reports to me. So all of enterprise risk management is now under my purview. Is it a separate function other than security, Absolutely. other than compliance? Yeah, whole separate director team, the whole bit. Yeah. Anyone else? Yeah, same here. That you know, I am I'm responsible for enterprise risk management. So, uh, back to uh, to April's point, uh, I, I totally agree. But I think that that is one of the the big disconnects that we have had for a long time in security is that we we have we've thought about security for security's sake um, in, in whatever way that manifests. But mm-hmm. really, security should be done for risk management, and we need we definitely need more people that are, are looking at that aspect of it. Um, you know, people at, at hackery conferences might not be interested in risk management, but the people that are interested in risk management um, are, are some of the people that were brought up earlier. You know, your board, the, the folks in your business that are, are trying to get things done, they care about risk management because that's their, that's their world. And, you know, I think the sooner that we as an industry realize that, the, the better off we're going to be. So I want to go to Jim uh, again from Open Group on this conversation for a second is, you know, Open Group's done a lot of work here. Where are your outlets to help educate the risk management folks, right? How how are we engaging with the risk folks? How are we educating? Where are those conferences, those events where people can learn about risk management? Yeah, so uh, good question. Um, we, we published the open fair standards of the factor analysis of information risk. We turned into a couple of standards in the open group. Um, I would say the, the outlet that uh, is getting the most traction in terms of educating large organizations uh, about quantitative risk management is the fair Institute. Um, so it's something that risk lens, the, uh, the people who uh, originated fair uh, have done and they do an annual conference. Uh, they're doing some things at RSA, um, and there is a decent amount of evangelism about you know the need for quantitative risk analysis uh, and appropriate methods, and you know really using um, uh, fair in this case as uh, the way to communicate with boards on how much risk is present in uh, in a given environment. Good, good, good source. I, and I, I do I really like the the fair model. We did a great uh, interview on yeah, that Jack. A, a, yeah, yeah. A, a year or so ago. Um, what I think drives the hacker culture nuts about compliance is that your uh, risk management, right, is that you're saying that, yes, we're vulnerable in some way, and that just drives us nuts because we know that any type of vulnerability, we want to figure out a way to do something with it. And I don't know why it's been largely ignored in, in the, the hacker kind of conferences and culture. Well, because it's not sexy mm-hmm. and it's it's hard to what funds conferences actually sponsors. Let me, let, me, let me throw something at somebody else here. Hey Ron, got a question for you. When you're out there looking at potential investment targets, which is sexier to you? Something that maybe can break stuff or something that can manage risk? I'm I'm saying this crudely, but you know what I'm saying? 
So it depends on where you're going. There's a lot of corporate companies out there who've got their own proprietary risk management tools. So if you came to me with a better risk management tools, that market, it's kind of a dry market because there's only, you know, what two, last time I checked, there were only 2,000 companies in the Fortune 2000, right? They've all got decent risk management. When you get outside of those 2,000, you don't have the sophistication to do a proper risk management uh, uh, study. And most of those folks couldn't follow this conversation. Wow. That's fascinating. Thank you. Well, this is one of the reasons I like the CMMC because it makes my doctor's office and these small vendors think about these processes. Uh, the problem is just IT is just way too complex. And you've seen a lot of people just doing things like, you know what, I could do CIS, I could harden my stuff, or I could just buy Microsoft Azure for Fed and be like 99% compliant with everything the DoD is asking because Microsoft set it up like that for me. That's kind of how people outside of this loop really think about these kind of issues. IT, I, I'm sorry, I'm going to go directly against you, and Ron, and say that IT is not complex. What is complex is the body of knowledge required to protect an organization dependent on what IT they bring in, right? So if they do everything in G Suites, right? If they do anything in Amazon, it's trying to understand the shared security model. And a lot of people who say, well, this looks good for now, right? They are not thinking ahead to be able to implement that from a strategy at the gate. Yeah, I, I don't I don't disagree with that. It's just when you get out of sort of corporate, you know, corporate folks and you get into these small businesses, we don't even have people there. And I guess one of the reasons I'm a little little frustrated is that um, uh, I joined the board of this thing called Defending Digital Campaigns. And you're literally working with people, maybe five to 10 people, none of them in IT. And we're trying to help them keep the Russians or the Chinese or the Republicans or the Democrats, you know, out, out of the campaign. And there's nobody in IT at these places. Mm. You know, there's literally like the only people close to IT are like um, people who are counting tweets or trying to manage the website or that kind of thing. So um, that's most of America. You know, once you get out of people who are well-resourced, mm -hmm. um, another way to think about this is Wendy actually coined a term called security poverty line. Um, I came up with something called cyber poverty line and then found out that she did that. The conversation <laughs> for people, people below this like mythical line um, they, they don't even follow what we're talking about. So how do you how do you get them to think about risk well, management? And, and there's a term above that property line. We call it the enterprise. Yeah. Every yeah. vendor out there is focused on selling to the enterprise because that's oh, no, where no, the I, money I, is. So, way, so I, I participate in this thing called the cyber moonshot. And we were talking about the, your first two questions. What does it mean to be secure? And I basically said, if you have a sense of hygiene and you have a sense of the ability to hunt inside your network, you're above the poverty line. Because there's a lot of enterprises out there who they're very compliant, but they don't have a red team. They don't have, uh, you know, like a, a threat team or anything like that. I would claim that they're not secure, even though they're, they can show you PCI, CIS, you know, that kind of stuff. I would claim that they're actually below the poverty line. I'm going to throw this out there. So, and tie again, back to risk management is the smaller companies until, I don't know when the mandate on the DOD was, but until now they, they may have made the business decision of, I cannot sell more product or, or, or more services with a more secure environment. So I'm making that decision to not invest in IT or in information security because it's not going to move my bottom line. Now, if they can't sell anything without it, that readjusts their, their management decision and they may begin investing it in a different way. And that comes back to what you were saying earlier, Paul, um, about how we don't like to know that things are insecure and admit it. 
But what we're really doing through this process is making the people, um, like the board, for example, understand and have to accept, or th like they know about it once it's in a once it's a risk. Um, it's known. It's it, it has to be dealt with one right. way or another. And that does support the hacker culture is bringing those exposure. I mean, in the next, we'll talk about some of the first uh, instances of hacking. Right, and it's about making a vulnerability or exposure known that was previously unknown. But. And maybe we'll talk more about it in the next segment, but to a large degree, when we bring that up, if it hasn't happened to them, yeah. it could be construed as FUD. Mm -hmm. It's true. And we all hate FUD, yet it's kind of necessary. Well, more often than not, the only way we really learn is when we get smacked, right? right? When, right. When, when really bad stuff happens to us, it forces us to grow, right? You know, and trying to have business owners understand that there is a way of doing this and it isn't difficult really is on us to do. And mm -hmm. I, I would venture to say we failed at that. Okay. I, I would agree. We've sat back as it people, as hackers, right? As people that do security and we play in our own sandbox. We do not reach out to business owners. We do not let people know what we know, Right. Well, gee, that keeps a paycheck coming in. You know, that, that's a real simple answer. But we have fundamentally failed at sharing this kind of information for businesses to be able to use, learn, and grow with. I mean, the flip side of that is many smaller businesses don't get interested in security until there's a breach or a compliance mandate. Why should they wait, though? One of the first consulting when I was first started consulting business was this software company all of a sudden said, we need to care about security because in order to do business with this large client, they've put down this security mandate and we have to show compliance. It wasn't any particular standard. It was just like, here's like, to do business with us, you got to meet these requirements. You must right? be this tall to ride the yes, ride. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. Yeah, a lot of folks then they ask, started caring about security. They asked me, are you high trust compliant? I say, no, I don't have any Great customers example. asking if I'm high trust compliant. Mm -hmm. If we began losing business because I'm not there, then it might make some right. sense, right? Um, others, other blues plans that have significant government business, that sort of thing, they're all high trust compliant because it's going to move their bottom line. Right. So it, it's I have a question for some of the CISOs who are on the call. Most of this conversation has been about internal security, internal compliance. But when it comes to third-party risk and third-party compliance, one, how many vendors are you using in that space? Are they consistent? And do you even believe the results that you're getting from that? That's a good question. Yeah. Ron, are you talking about like uh, vendor management kind of third-party? Uh, vendor management, uh, indirect technical assessments to them. I don't, I don't, I don't really want you to name some of these guys do different. They do amazing things. Like they infer security profiles based on, you know, DNS and URL shorteners and stuff like that. Others are trying to amass, uh, you know, self-assessment questionnaires from, you know, from the masses out there. So there are different ways to measure it. But then for your business, do you believe them and factor them into anything? Yeah, I, I think that uh, those types of services are all great data points. Um, but I haven't found anything yet that I can say, oh, in, instead of the processes that I've already put in place to do reviews, um, these are going to replace them. Um, you know, there are, there's many vendors out there that'll give you, you know, a score for a company or something like that. Yeah, that, that's an interesting data point. Um, it's interesting to see when those scores go up or down. Uh, does that mean I, I can use that instead of, uh, performing my own assessment of that vendor? No, but um, it, it is definitely an interesting data point. Yeah, we, it, it's a data point for us. Uh, this this year, I, I really instructed my team to get into a uh, 
open up our threat intelligence program internally to our top risk vendors. Uh, you know, so, and, and, you know, there's a lot of companies that do it. It's all open source intelligence. I'm not going to spend money on it when I can go to Shodan for 500 bucks a year and run on the same things. Uh, I think most important that folks aren't doing is they need to start and understand what is the impact to the business of this third party, either not providing services anymore or breaching your data and then working backwards from there because the, the volume of information and vendors is, is ever growing. So and that's a risk fit. assessment at yep. the end of the day, right? Yep. It, it, it's a basic risk assessment to understand the risk posed by that third party. Mm-hmm. And then based on the type of data, where it's stored, et cetera, you're going to apply, I would imagine, a set of controls that you'd want them to to have in place to yep. continue yeah, uh, the, the hardest business. thing we're struggling with now is I can say, you know, these are riskier vendors and this is this could be the impact if they're breached. I'm having trouble understanding and calculating the likelihood. I can mm, say, like, out yeah. of my 100 vendors, these five are risky. Because do they publish, like, these vendors with a lower score? Or, yeah, three months from now, they produce another report and say, yeah, they were breached? Or do they do that with the higher scoring ones? If it's a higher scoring vendor when they're breached, does that impact their score? And what are the metrics on, yeah. on that? Like when uh, when Equifax got breached, I think it was security scorecard that basically said, look, we, we said this was a risk three months, four months before. And I think Senator Warren even put that in her uh, uh, report to Congress on it. So gotcha. I, I thought that was a pretty good moment for that industry. Absolutely. So I have a question for the practitioners or anyone in the group. In my experience over the years, uh, I had a lot of customers that would be categorized as immature We've talked a little bit about what makes companies do security or compliance or something and, you know, compliance being a driver, uh, being breached, being a driver. We've just introduced, you know, our customers demanding it of us. Uh, I've had a lot of customers and it sort of falls into the checkbox mentality, but they, they would ask me, what are our competitors doing? We want to do no more, no less than anybody else in our industry so that we can be construed as being you know, in the, in the realm of best practice or, you know, no more, no less. It's sort of a variation. You have to be do, the fastest runner in the zombie apocalypse. <laughs> something like that. So, so, so if you try to, if do you, you still <laughs> see that you, uh, those of us that are, are consultants, advisors, whatever, or practitioners, do you get that sense anymore? So if you want to go ahead, Wendy, uh, what I see is um, a combination of people looking at their peers and doing that sort of thing. You know, the benchmarking, which is, um, you know, they, they can't convince their management to spend any more if their peers aren't. But if your peers are really bad at security, uh, w- which has happened to me, then, you yep. know, you, you really can't use a benchmark as a, as a motivator. The other thing that I see, though, is uh, organizations who choose um, aspirational role models, uh, other organizations that they know are good at security and they say, we want to be like Google, we want to be like, you know, Facebook or Microsoft or whatever. Um, so they, they have two different role models that they're measuring themselves against. That's funny because, Wendy, to your point, back before the Target breach, and I was actively a QSA at that time, Target was considered within the PCI world to, to be an aspiring company because they had committed resources to a security program. They were doing it. They had a huge staff. I don't know what the exact number, and some of this might be folklore, but they were looked up upon by a lot of retailers and merchants and people within the PCI space as a company that was doing it right. And then, boom, <laughs> turns I, I, out they I'd weren't. Argue, yeah. I'd argue they were still doing it right, but mistakes were made, and everybody right. makes oh. mistakes. 
I don't understand this idea of not wanting to do more than the competitor. I mean, if you're looking at uh, like buying a piece of software and there's four different vendors that make the same kind of software and one of them is compliant with three things and one of them is compliant with nothing or like you need FedRAMP or you need, you know, something that's a differentiator. Uh, I mean, but unless you're losing be. business because of it, you're not incentivized to do it. I mean, it's finance at the end of the day. Right? Yeah. If that competitor who has more compliance checkboxes is selling more than you, then sure. But if you're the market leader and you're not compliant, then mm. what's going to be the business incentive to right? get or, that done? Or the price for the service. That could be the other factor, right? You have four vendors that do the exact same thing. The business says, I want to go with the cheapest one, which is maybe the one that doesn't have all those controls in place. Hasn't spent any money on compliance. Right. So, they, so can they can be cheaper, <laughs> right? Well, compliance um, and security are always looked at. I'm sorry. Compliance and security are always looked at as cost centers. Okay. Get us out of the mentality of being a cost center and being a profit center. Figure out how compliance and security is an additive to the bottom line of what the business does, sells, moves, so on and so forth. That could it, almost it, be a separate panel. Discussion. It could be. Oh, yeah. no, totally. But it goes back to the risk management discussion, right? If I can prove through my investments in security and compliance that I am at a lower risk to have a breach, have brand reputation damage, lose customers, lose customer data, that that's the measurable piece I think we can get to as an industry. I don't think we're there yet. But I think those are some of the, the drivers that could move us away from being considered a cost center into a business enabler. I don't know that we're a revenue generator at the end of the day, but we can be. Well, it a, depends on the business. Yeah. But, you know, like if you're if you're if you're if you're government security is a revenue generator because you're able to move government forward. Right. If you're a security house. Right. You're doing pen tests. You're doing, you know, it's 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 kind of a no brainer. But if you're a mom and pop pizza shop, security is definitely not going to be uh, a generator. and It's going to be a detractor. Right. Right. So. In everything that we've talked about from risk management to compliance to security, the bottom line is it depends on the business. Is that a fair thing to say? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It is. Yep. You, know? you are and, all unique snowflakes. And it's not, it's, not, it's not so much fitting the business to the compliance, but it's fitting compliance to the business. Right. Because in every business, there's going to be certain pieces and certain participles of compliance that you use versus a competitor, which does the exact same thing. They're going to use different parts of the compliance set. Right. There's there is no one end all be all. This is the de facto way we need to do this to manage risk now, solution. Now, Scott, participle is a really big word for you. Oh, I know. Oh, I, I know it is. And, <laughs> and, 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 and it's probably used wrong, said but I do it for Josh. Okay? <laughs> I do it for Josh because it I makes him cringe. You. I hate you. I hate you. <laughs> now, the question is, is it dangling or not? No, oh. we're not talking about chats, okay? <laughs> Scott, the Larry, the source is not a dinosaur, <laughs> right? It, it, no, it is. Okay. <laughs> uh, you know, it's an interesting point that's raised. There's no one-size-fits-all in compliance. There's no one-size-fits-all in security. There's no... It, it, is, it is a difficult problem. We talked about binary solution sets and how they really don't exist. We talked about how maturity levels uh, and, and for compliance and security are much more mature in, the, in and of themselves. We've talked about the different viewpoints where compliance drives security, security drives compliance. I prefer to think that they drive each other and they some, some ways compliance helps to drive budgets for security and some ways security helps to drive the, the functionality of compliance uh, and, and they, they, they interact in a, as I said, symbiotic fashion. I but think that's however a, go, you, go ahead, Josh. 
finish and then we have to wrap up. However you believe this, this is uh, all of these factors are things that you have to consider in your programs. Go ahead, Paul, please. Uh, I was just going to say, I thought those were great closing remarks. (laughs) And with that, that will conclude this panel discussion. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today. And that's a wrap. Happy holidays. Let the team at Black Hills Information Security test your defenses. With over 10 years of experience in penetration testing, red teaming, and threat hunting, the testers at Black Hills will help you find the holes in your security before the bad guys do. The team at Black Hills cares about educating and sharing their knowledge by creating countless blogs, open source tools, and webcasts for you to learn more about the tradecraft of pen testing and red teaming. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash BHIS to join their mailing list and view the latest blogs and webcasts from Black Hills Information Security. The biggest problem in security that remains unsolved is unprotected attack paths that allow threats to compromise vulnerable targets in the cloud and data center. But traditional micro-segmentation is too complex and time-consuming. There's a better approach. Edgewise Zero Trust Auto Segmentation. Edgewise is impossibly simple micro-segmentation, delivering results immediately with a security outcome that's provable and management that's zero touch. Driven by machine learning, Edgewise automatically builds policies that protect any application in any cloud without any changes to your network. They provide measurable improvement by quantifying attack path risk reduction and verifying software identity before it communicates to stop application compromises and data breaches. To see how to eliminate your network attack surface, visit securityweekly.com forward slash edgewise. Welcome to our security history roundtable discussion. First, I'd like to remind our listeners to subscribe to the Security Weekly mailing list where you'll receive information about our upcoming webcasts, all new virtual training and Security Weekly appearances at conferences throughout the year. You can subscribe to said mailing list and all of our podcasts by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash subscribe. Welcome, everyone, to the Security History Roundtable. First, I will introduce the hosts uh, that are regular Security Weekly hosts. Mr. Larry Pesci is to my left. Mr. Jeff Mann is here. Hello. Matt Alderman. Hello, all. Lee Neely joining Aloha, us for the first time. Uh, for the first time. First time today. Woo. Thanks for making it. Welcome oh, to Jason G Albuquerque is there. here. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Joff Thayer is here. Oh, is he my, I'm is here. You're I here. St- I He's stumbled here my way into New England the again. Flesh. <laughs> Holy cow. They, fantastic. All hosts in studio. All oh, hosts oh, in studio. Yeah. Yeah. It's a full court. Wow. Our guests are remote. Uh, Wynn Schwartow is the chief visionary officer at SAC Labs. Welcome, Wynn. Thank you very much. Jeremiah Grossman is the CEO at Bit Discovery. Hey guys, how you doing? Jason Street is the VP of InfoSec at Sphere NY. Hi. And Mr. Ron Gula from Gula Tech Adventures. Ron, welcome back. For you. This is like your third one today. Yippee Kaye, Cybernutter. <laughs> <laughs> oh, how appropriate. So I, I guess with a, a history uh, segment, we want to start theoretically at the beginning. I'm not sure if it was the beginning. Larry was kind enough to uh, dig up this story. Uh, Neville Maskelin uh, hacked a wireless telegraph demonstration. Now, what I loved about this is I think it's one of the first occurrences of hacking, although... Uh, D- documented at least documented the, at least documented. in the electronics in the modern era yeah. in the modern era Mo- modern right 1903 yeah, right um so larry why don't you uh, kind of describe for us and, and get us started uh by the oldest <clears throat> one that at least we could find uh, right right so uh uh marconi was doing a demonstration of his new wireless telegraph which he had billed as being secure 
uh, that no one could listen to the messages and intercept and, and all of this type of stuff. Because um, we've never heard that before. Right. And, and th- this was all, all a new thing. Uh, but what had happened was that uh, Masculine had uh, effectively reversed engineered uh, Marconi's implementation and created his own transmitter. And while uh, Marconi was doing his public demonstration of this new secure communications method, um, Masculine took his own messages and effectively overrode and uh, you know, created more volume, more amplitude of his signal so that his messages were interjected, uh, clearly indicating that this is not a secure technology. Okay. And of course, after that, we abandoned wireless technology altogether because Absolutely. it's insecure. Absolutely. Right? Well, I, <laughs> I have to say, it's like, thank you very much for, for sharing that story. Like, cause it's like, I read some more onto it and, and I came across one of the best phrases that we need to start. Instead of calling it hacking, it was called scientific hooliganism. It's like, why aren't we using that? It's like, I want to be a scientific hooligan. It's like, who cares about being a hacker? It's like, I'm a scientific hooligan. But that makes a great business card, doesn't it? (laughs) Scientific hooligan. And also, the key thing about Neville is like that we got to give props to him is that, once again, he was self-taught and he was a street musician. He used a lot of his wireless technology that that he developed was for his magic trick and to talk to his uh, stagehands. And so, uh, I mean, Neville was like a, I mean, like an old school OG hacker, big time. It's like, I mean, he taught himself all this stuff, and he just got pissed off because Marconi was uh, 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 using all these broad patents where he couldn't actually uh, use it. So he said, "Well, I'm going to show them," and he freaking hacked it and showed them where the security vulnerability was. Yep. Wait, and he, wait, and mag- he was magic's the not real. <laughs> <laughs> and Neville, Neville was the father of the war magician who did it, uh, his son, in World War II. So it was a family affair. Yeah, wow. it's awesome. Wow. So, yeah, I, I, but I just really have to get some stickers for scientific hooliganism. <laughs> I'm going to have to get my business card updated now. Right. Yeah. And, and what yeah, I love about that is it embodies the, the hacker spirit that we still very much present today in that exactly. when people present new technology, us as the hacker community, we're like, oh, there's got to be a way to break that, right? And right. to date I that back to 1903 is really cool. Yeah. 100%. I just like it that there's no blockchain involved. <laughs> <laughs> that we know of. Well, now, if I remember correctly from the story, though, wasn't there a piece of this that was corporate espionage? Didn't didn't the uh, the Eastern Telegraph Company actually hire him to do some spying? I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, I wouldn't mm. be surprised. I'm not here about that. But one of my favorite things about it's like I keep telling people it's like re- always have to remember it's like hackers don't create the vulnerabilities; they discover them. They're already there. They're inherently in the systems. It's just we bring them to light. It's not that we're like making them happen. It's like you know, it's like they're there. It's like we're just showing you that, oh, this is not as secure as you think it is. Uh, you you want to sell this telegraph service as secure, but it's not. Let me prove it to you. Well, and some very different from our, our next article, right, which was the uh, breaking the Enigma machine, which wasn't widely publicized, of course, yeah. <laughs> when that was broken. Yeah. <laughs> well, point of fact, I, I started working at NSA in 1986. And one of the first things I learned, uh, amongst other things, was about the Enigma machine. But it was still a secret that the fact that the Allies had broken the Enigma machine, it wasn't declassified until I think it was 88 or 89. And I always ask, you know, I I tell that people when I see them at conferences, and I always ask, why do you think it was still a secret? 
And the and answer j- is you, you said this on the show, and I, and I had never like dug into the history behind it, and I, it's it's awesome. Well, and, and the answer is it, it was because it was still being used, mm-hmm. and that, oh, and wow. that's 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 probably uh, the only glowing example I know of of keeping secrets because you know it was broken in what forty three something like that, mm-hmm. and the the fact that it was broken was kept secret for over fifty years. Yeah. If wow. I'm doing my math right. 40 years. Almost. 50. 40 years. Okay. We should write a CVE for the Enigma machine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can we go get it added to the NVD, please? CVE-1940. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so anybody who's into uh, crypto tourism, if they're coming through Maryland, uh, not only can you get a cigar with maybe me and Jeff, uh, there, but we can go to the Cryptological Museum at the NSA, and you can see one of these machines. Yep, that place Indeed is awesome. awesome. Yes. Well, I was just at Bletchley Park, and it's like, and they totally uh, updated and revamped uh, what it looks like, and it's like, I mean, they've added some really cool interactive um, uh, tourist sites and stuff. You know, talking about the Ending Machine, it's like actually looking at the bomb and and how it's working, and and it's really really cool there now. Well, there's also one of those up in uh, the Swedish NSA, about 80 kilometers north of Stockholm. They've got a museum oh, nice. up there as well. And Jason, you've been to the uh, Science Museum in London. They yep. have some a terrific new display they just put together that includes the bomb, pre-bomb, and all of the derivations of that as well. And they're really open about it. It's great. Just don't, yeah. when you're checking in at the airport, say, I'm going to the museum to see the bomb. Yeah. Just, don't be <laughs> just a <laughs> that, that public service announcement flag. there. <laughs> well, I mean, it could be worse. I mean, if you said that I'm going to the museum to give them the bomb. Mm. <laughs> that would be, be bad. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Um, just a note for our audience, the uh, articles that we're talking about are all in the show notes, wiki.securityweekly.com. Uh, I encourage our listeners to go go check them out uh, as the team collectively uh, read these, put them together. Everyone made suggestions. It was awesome. I dated the, uh, we talked about this actually throughout the year, and we talked today about getting rid of the password, right? Mm-hmm. And the individual who created the password, Fernando Cortbat. Batal, Corbato, thank you. Um, he uh, recently passed away. Mm. And so there's a lot of articles written which caused me to kind of do some research as to exactly why and how the first password was created right on a CTSS system, uh, which is actually an IBM 7090. Now, one of the books I read, of course, for the in preparation for this was Hackers, Heroes of the Computer Revolution. And they go into the contention between the hacker group at MIT uh, the Model Railroad Club, right? And the CTSS system, which was a time-sharing system and how that was very opposite of the hacker culture, right. which we'll talk about later. But basically, users wanted to not have other users see their files. So uh, Fernando created the password. And then Alan Share, uh, 25 years later, came out and said, yeah, I, I hacked those passwords and, and printed them out. Uh, so that story is in there too, which is just, it's a, a fascinating read and probably the first password dump, maybe, yeah, in history, yeah. 1966. Huh. Was anyone around back back then? Yeah, I was. Um, on computers? No, on computers. <laughs> you need to define computer because I did my first hack, hack in 1958. And my mother was furious with me for making lots of telephone calls because back in those days every local call was like 10 cents a minute mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so she was all over my case about it so she puts a lock on the telephone and i'm six years old oh that night she goes oh you figured out how to get around the lock 
<laughs> and back in those days, for those of you who remember, if you did it right, you could hit the ringer for anybody who remembers what those yep. were fast yep. enough to bypass the lock and trigger the stepping relays back yep. in the old switching systems. Yep. Get a hold of an operator, say, my phone is broken. Can you please connect me? That's yeah. awesome. The question is, how did she figure out that you'd hacked it? She uh, saw the, next, the bill. The, the, she the, the phone bill. bill. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> you need to hack the billing system, when? <laughs> uh, well, no, that, that did not come until 1972 when yeah. we used to get our bills on Hollowith cards. And oh next gosh. to the amount of money that you owed, there was a blank space. And we said, what if? So we go down to the computer center, put a minus sign next to the amount of money we owed, and we'd get a refund every month. For the amount of <laughs> beautiful, beautiful. That's beautiful. <laughs> it sounds like the constant battle I'm in with, with my son, especially my oldest, right? Yeah. Trying to lock them out of things just doesn't. It doesn't work. He just uses right? a crowbar. He does. He, he actually <laughs> used a crowbar, <laughs> crowbar. Uh, to get into my office. Well, I seem to remember a couple of years after uh, that, we were we were uh, using a time a timeshare system, and we, we we had but we had modems, so we decided we'd dial up other numbers, and we dialed up the number for the local uh, phone company. There was no logging in. It was you dialed up, you were in. The only problem we had is we didn't do enough research on what to do once we were in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Facepalm moment. We, which is interesting today. I mean, we can go to the internet and find just about anything, including manuals for things that we want to hack. And it was interesting to go back in history and think about life before Google. And yeah. if I wanted to, as Lee was mentioning, hack the phone system, I had to find manuals, right? And there was a lot of people trading manuals, ordering manuals to hack all kinds of things uh, and a lot of the things that I read, which is uh, pretty cool. Well, and we back then we had the Anarchist Cookbook, too. That's right, yes. And, and that's also what got the Legion of Doom in so much trouble when they got sued by the feds because they bought for 19 or $20 or $30 the operating system for the early SS7s, and they used that to break in, and AT&T... Uh, went after them, and Bill Cook out of Chicago was the federal prosecutor, and they spent hundreds of thousand dollars going after Goggins and a bunch of other guys in order to prove that they had stolen proprietary uh, information that actually had an ISBN number and a price. <laughs> now, I found the, the, the first computer virus, which this is what the internet told me, was 1969. It has to be true. It has to be true, right? Uh, it was called Rabbits. And it stated that nobody knows who made it and nobody knows why. Is that is that still true? Everyone's just kind of smiling. If you do know, you're not going to say on the air. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think Fred Cohen might argue with you about that uh, from a public disclosure standpoint. Because he claims uh, that he was the first one to actually show a virus crossing over uh, domains uh, that had some level of privileged access. And I actually have his PhD here that showed this. And I think that was either 83 or 84. But if somebody did it before, I don't know how well documented that is. Right. And that, well, that's the problem. This was 1969. Yep. And uh, I'd argue the why. Because they could. Because yeah. they could. Right. I think yeah, I, think I like how the fact that they started a long history of naming viruses with cool names. Yeah, right. It started from the very beginning, apparently. I guess so. Uh, oh, in, man, and I well, thought and, Bleed was the first brand. Right. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't have websites or logos. Maybe, they didn't have pretty maybe. logos. It was ASCII logos back then. Maybe. ASCII right. art. Right. Well, and looking, yeah. at, ASCII art was looking cool. at what rabbits did, it was essentially the first DOS attack, too, probably. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> 
and then of course there was Creeper and uh, Reaper, which is a little right. more, I think, uh, kind of in tune with things that we might uh, recognize, right? Uh, the deck PDP ten, uh, of course, just before the PDP eleven, which pretty much launched uh, Unix into uh, the technology realm. Um, and this was actually what I found was the first virus and antivirus that was created. Right, so Creeper was the uh, virus, and Reaper was the program um, that deleted the self-replicating Creeper. So that was on PDP tens or elevens. PDP tens, yes, it's back PDP wow. mainframe computers running ten X operating system. And back Digital in those equipment days, corporation for all those who don't know it. Right, <laughs> it's a very good point. <laughs> Some our, our listeners may not uh, recognize that and recognize using the ARPANET as the first. Uh, the beginnings of the internet. internet. Yeah. I'm curious to ask our, our esteemed historians, because I don't know the answer. You know, we're saying that rabbits was the first virus. I'm guessing it wasn't called a virus at the time. Mm -hmm. And creeper is called the first worm. Yeah, I'm guessing it probably wasn't called a worm at the time, or maybe that's when we started specifying what these things were. Because we used to talk about Trojans and viruses and mm -hmm. worms, and now it's just all malware. I don't know if that matters or not, but yeah. When did the the terminology start changing or coming into popular I, vocabulary? Probably when we added cyber. Yes, <laughs> the cyber worm, cyber virus. Well, the Morris worm, which I know is a, I'm skipping forward a few stories, was called the Morris worm. Right, right. I I, I seem to recall the Morris worm was was the first time I I certainly widely heard that term applied. Yep. yep. Um, I agree that okay yeah i remember because when they were talking about the more when we were when the morris worm was happening and my guys were working on it in 1988 uh they were calling it the morris worm back then so it had somewhere some, the terminology came in by then yeah well i think unfortunately and it's sort of sad is like uh it's indicative of an other issue it's like it's it switched over from virus to worms to mostly malware is because it's changed. It's the like in, uh, yeah. a lot of the viruses and stuff, you know, were not, you know, meant for crime. And it's like they, they weren't, they, some of them were malicious, but it's like they weren't criminal. It's like yep. they were exploratory and they were pranks and they were like, you know, see if I can do this. Back in the olden days, it's like when you got a virus, it, you know, it was just nice enough to just destroy your hard drive or you know, <laughs> ruin your files. It's like, or if your website was hacked, it was nice enough to just to web deface it saying, hey, we were here, we, we own you. And and now it's like, uh, no, it's like viruses don't do that. It's like they, you know, up, set up remailers or ransomware. And websites are now doing click jacking and, and it's like, and, and spreading out uh, uh, waterhole attacks. So I think that's what's happened is it's become mostly malware. It's like it's all just more malicious. It's all criminal in nature. And, and Jason, it's a great lead into the next story, right? In 1973, Robert Metcalf uh, documented high school students that had hacked into the ARPANET through early tips or uh, terminals at the time using the Telnet program. Um, and it led Robert Metcalf to create... RFC 602, which is still an official RFC today, uh, which basically, from what I could tell, was one of the first warnings that people are going to use computers to do bad things. Um, so I, in, from RFC uh, 602, it's called The Stockings Were Hung by the Chimney with Care, which fits our holiday uh, Ooh, theme. Beautiful. And I, I pulled a, a quote from this that I, I thought was, if in 1973, 
um, just an unbelievable vision. Uh, Robert says individual sites use physical limitations on machine access, have not yet taken uh, sufficient precautions towards securing their systems against unauthorized remote use. For example, many people still use passwords, which are easy to guess their first names, initials, host name spelled backwards, a string of characters which are easy to type in sequence. Basically so, so not us, much has changed. <laughs> not much has changed. Exactly. And the saga um, continues. Jeremiah? How, how far we have come. Right? <laughs> yeah. 40 years of a warning and we still haven't figured it out. Uh, yeah. Which, which might like be the, a good reason to, or time to bring up the... The subtitle of this segment, which is Lessons Learned. Learn. Right. right, right. Well, I mean, arguably, we have figured it out, actually. We have introduced things like multi-factor authentication. Um, you know, uh, you look at uh, some of the, the uh, biological kind of controls that we're starting to introduce, right? Uh, fingerprinting and, and face recognition and so on. It may not necessarily be the right steps in the right direction, but we have figured some alternatives out. I, but much a of adoption, the MFA today is really right. just another password. It is. A, a, adoption, now, there are better schemes, of course. But Well, adoption is the other issue, right? Yes. Yeah. I mean, everybody gets used to a model. It's kind of like driving a car. Mm -hmm. It's like, what do you mean I, I, I can take my hands off the steering wheel, right? I mean, it's, you know, getting the, the user community to, to move and change, even getting the IT community to move and change is, is challenging. Well, I don't know if you've read the recent articles about Ring uh, and how parents are horrified that people are Packing spying on ring. them on the internet. And really, right. it goes back to RFC 602. Yeah. <laughs> people are right. just you know, picking either poor passwords or um, reusing, reusing Re passwords, but, but right? Re reusing both uh, their login and their password combinations together. Right. Same sort right. of thing happened with Disney Plus when they released a service. Credential stuffing. Within 24 right. hours, accounts right. have been compromised because of credential stuffing. Well, and, you, and you look at, look at pen testing, um, uh, you know, Larry, you can attest to, and I certainly can. I mean, I was doing a lot of testing last week, and password guessing was pretty high on my list. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Right? Even uh, still today. Yep. And, and uh, I was just doing a little research earlier this week. Uh, one, a researcher did a work, uh, some examination on hardware one time, uh, you know, hardware storage, so you could store, instead of using an Excel spreadsheet or LastPass or something, there's some vendors creating hardware to store them. But when you he went in right off the JTAG interface and could dump the passwords and clear out of <laughs> whoops, oops. And, or one actually encrypted it, but you could see the decryption key and clear in there. And oh, we we've never seen that before. No, 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 no. no. For policy but preferences. I, I, where I was going, I'm not <laughs> like sure. Like Jeff says, it comes down to implementation, right? Right, right? I'm just not sure how many people are willing to carry all this stuff around for right. hard authentication. I mean, I have no choice. I'm only to have two of these, by the way. I've got oh, you only have two six. RSA tokens. <laughs> I've got friends with six. I remember and I don't those really things. want two. Oh my God! Look, Lee's whipping in his dongles now. Excuse me, I whip this out. So, so and his so appropriately begins. obscured cat card as well. So, <laughs> John, back to your point for a second, right? Yeah. We have made improvements that aren't being adopted, and, right. and I guess the lesson learned discussion here is why aren't they being adopted? And I, mm -hmm. so l let me just. Well, I, I think, for I think a second, not being adopted is too strong a term. I think they're not being universally adopted. Yeah, there right. there are plenty of organizations mm -hmm. that are adopting strong uh, multi-factor authentication. Probably because of strong compliance. Controls. It's, it's, it's I, I can hear PCI coming up anywhere. <laughs> like, oh, and I don't have a drink. Have a drink. Yeah. 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 All, right. All right, I've got to be contrarian here. Sorry, guys. When I'm shocked. Sorry. Land on us. Don't be sorry. All right, passwords, uh, all of that. Um, 
the primary vector of attack is not coming after Jason or me or you with your dongle and getting <laughs> mugged at an airport. It's not unless they want your dongles dream. really badly. It's they better still kiss me first. It's still, what's going on in the back end of the systems and getting in through other mechanisms because the bad guys don't want one. They don't want two. They want a hundred thousand of them, which means that it's still how are those passwords and authentication mechanisms being stored in the back end? And I have been bitching about this for a long time. Back in Security Dynamics, if anybody remembers that, 1989, 1990, became RSA. That long ago? Yep. Yep. Wow. This uh, is a history talk. Yeah, no, it's cool. Well, a little bit. They did that little, all right, we're going to change the access code every 30 seconds or 60 seconds or whatever. Mm -hmm. So we fast forward a lot. And Europe said, we're going to solve our credit card fraud problem by a chip. Well, I have a chip card. I got a swipe card. Now, I go through zero double, double verification whenever I use one of those. Why does, for example, the credit card industry not use credit cards with dynamic numbers so that there is not a static number sitting in databases that's retrievable by the bad guys? I think our entire authentication mechanism that we're using, by and large, regardless of 2FA or anything else, is still a modern iteration of a binary condition called fortress mentality. I'm going to keep the bad guys out if I put in this one block versus having, in this case, a time-based shift over time where that is not whatever you download, whatever database you compromise, effectively is useless. Right. Well, part of the answer to that question, Wynn, is because the credit card agencies don't view that as authentication. They view it as verification. Is it a good oh. card? We can run it. Mm -hmm. You can you can I make fully the sale. agree, and that's why we're all paying for fraud at eighteen yep. percent because right. they're using it as a case of cost of doing business, inventory shrinkage in the old physical world of looking at things. But think how much of this problem could go away if we didn't store static INA mechanisms or two FA mechanisms in our databases, and they were constantly changing. But, but then so you I, get I like into that. And I've actually been pitched some companies who do tokenization in this area. Mm -hmm. One of the cool things of that concept is that if I steal a database a week ago, um, you know, you can fingerprint when you see it in the wild that that was the database from a week ago. So that's really, really useful for knowing when you were compromised. Absolutely. And we have the technology. Uh, I've seen credit cards uh, prototype that have the last four digits constantly changing. And it's a matter of redefining how we do our database storage of authentication mechanisms. Technically, it'd only be the last, it'd be three of the last four digits changing because the last digit is a check digit. Yeah. Sorry, Jeremiah. I defer yeah, you to what? you, Jeff. <laughs> PCI. Coming up with adoption. Um, you know, we read earlier 1973, we could have read that quote today and no one would have known the difference. Mm -hmm. yep. um, there is alternatives to passwords, MFA, but I think less than 5% of users have adopted it. Corporations, you know, when, when brought it up with uh, the credit card industry, we could do it better, but they don't. I don't think we're lacking ideas so much as far as how to make things secure, but we're lacking incentives in the system to get the right people to do the right thing at the, at the right time. That's what I, I see going wrong, wrong with everything and why we, we can't move forward from this stuff. Right. So, I, so what's pushing against the incentives I, I, I see is uh, 
there's a tremendous pressure for user convenience, uh, usability, yep. speed of operation. You know, the, these are all pressures going in the other direction against adopting some of these secure yep. mechanisms. I mean, everybody on the panel here has, has said various things. We have the technology. This, we have the solutions. Um, it's, we can it's make a matter them better, of getting the will faster, it, stronger. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a matter of actually having the willpower to follow through on it. Um, uh, at the cost of a little bit of convenience sometimes. And, and I, th I think a lot of folks well, are and, not willing and to, to that end, take that and, cost. And you guys at Pentest more recently than I have, I, I often found that the worst offenders are not the, the, the user community, it's the admins. Yeah, They're the actually, ones taking the shortcuts. Uh, th 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 that's a true statement. And, and I, I'm not going to blame them for it. I think they've got a lot of pressures sure. that, that they're trying to compensate for. And, and uh, when you have a lot of pressures... Uh, you, you turn to some, you know, convenient and, and potentially lazy habits, and uh, that actually opens the door for a, a lot of the attacks that we're able to to pull off. I'll be perfectly honest with you in the pen testing world. The organizations that do it really well, um, they're tough nuts to crack. They're mm -hmm. hard to pen test. Mm -hmm. I mean, they really are. Now, right? uh, kind of segueing off of, of uh, passwords, which kind of relates to the uh, Clifford Stall, right? If, and mm -hmm. if you're in InfoSec or interested in getting an InfoSec, it's one of the books that pushed me into this field. Oh, yeah. uh, highly recommend uh, that you read it. Um, the, it culminated, right, with a group in West Germany was selling military information, such as passwords, uh, to the KGB. But it was Clifford Stall, which I look at as the first instance of threat hunting. Before we coin the term threat hunting, right? Just for just for parliamentary procedure, what is the name of the book, Paul? A cuckoo's egg. Thank you. Uh, yes. yes, a cuckoo's egg. Clifford Stahl, uh, and this was in 1988, where basically an accounting error led Clifford down a path, yeah. which is still very valid today. So, if it's you're a bad the, guy out there, remember to always adjust you know, the accounting. Yeah. <laughs> you know, don't just clear the logs out. Follow the accounting trail. Well, but there were some other interesting things Clifford did, uh, like he created turned a Mac into a fishbowl. That was pretty cool. cool. Well, that, that, that came later. <laughs> he did things to keep the hacker engaged while he was yeah. attempting to do his forensics. Um, he was it created, the first instance of a honeypot? You think that's what I was thinking? Because uh, yeah. he created this this um, this whole SDI net honeypot that they could then just start reaming through the data they were long enough to stay connected prior to that he was doing things like dangling his keys across the bare connectors on the rsa2 rs232 connector to create uh, noise characters. Yeah. he didn't Generating have the key. advantage mm -hmm. at that time of the world wide web and and the and the hackers simply trying to load the page that had lots of images he didn't have it. a cyber deception solution no <laughs> well, think about what what i mean these techniques are kind of common today can we trace their origins back or am i just being um, opportunistic. It's what I liked about the book was that even though it was 1986, you know, a good bit of the book is like going to the NSA, going to the FBI, going to the Pentagon, going to these defense contractors, TRW, you know, things like going internationally. And that was 86. And when people ask, like, why is DHS or the Pentagon or the NSA, you know, kind of so complex these days, it, it was like that even back in 86. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, one other point on this, though, is is when I got into cyber, this was Drink. one of the books that got me into cyber. So I, I used mm. to recommend this Drink. to people. The other book was um, uh, The Puzzle Palace. Yep. But then the third book was Information Warfare. And I, I can't remember the name of the author of that, <laughs> of that book. Who was that? Yeah. Oh. yeah. Well, 
when you're too modest come on well no so but it's a good point when uh 1991 was your first book um the first fictionalized version of it was 1990 the uh then i started talking with the feds and all of that and they called me crazy uh when i testified before congress before the book came out they said mr schwartow why would the bad guys ever want to use the internet <laughs> and it went sort of downhill. Oh, sort wow. of went downhill from there. <laughs> and then the book, I think, came out in late '93 as the first nonfiction version of it. And I never expected all of the stuff that I said was going to happen to happen. Yeah, if it's any consolation, when we still think you're crazy. <laughs> oh, no, I appreciate that. In a good way. In a good way. Absolutely. Absolutely, you are kind of crazy, when. <laughs> And so uh, that was real, well before that, right? I think leading up to those uh, events in uh, just before the 1988, right, was the Mars worm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's just like a lot of really interesting facts uh, about the the Mars worm and in the Mars family, right? His dad was the uh, esteemed MIT professor. Um, when also, I presented, also an NSA employee, because I took a course with them one time oh i didn't know okay. that yeah. that's interesting uh mm-hmm. when i was at mit i didn't realize the the uh history right we would go there for security camp all the universities uh in the mm-hmm. northeast MIT right you, re- camp. you remember that right mm-hmm. and we would talk a lot about robert morris and his dad and the whole uh dynamic and i i guess when i was getting into security and reading about the morris worm i was like why didn't Robert Morris do security, right? Like this is the first worm. Mm-hmm. Now it caused damage. He was um, the first person to be charged yep. under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, yep. um, and was convicted. Convicted felon, right? I guess mm-hmm. his dad. The story that I heard, dad was ashamed, and Robert Jr. So. was like, Jr. was like, yeah, I won't do anything else for security. Uh, and from my knowledge, he's still an MIT professor Became today. A professor, yeah. Yeah. Wow. So, and and not that it matters, I guess, but it, you know, at the time it was Robert Morris Jr. that was Junior. doing the bad things, yes. and Senior Correct. was the one that was esteemed, distinguished, and embarrassed by his his child. Yes, um, <laughs> that's never happened to any of us as parents. No, 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 no. I, I not at all. Some of the actual bugs in there are ones that could still be valid today, actually, in uh, in Unix systems, right? Um, but he basically crashed the entire internet. Yep. Right. Which is not possible today, of course. No. Never, never Uh, wait. Wait, wait. wait. When we're going to crash the internet again? Oh, Oh, I I don't. That's out of the scope of this conversation. Let's let's move on. (laughs) Jeff, you're doing a great job. (laughs) Uh, Any any uh, inspirations that we drew in our careers from the Mars worm, or any interesting facts? Jeremiah, you make copies of the internet that that Robert took down. I, I, w- I wasn't making a copy of the internet back then. <laughs> right. <laughs> Probably easier. Well, maybe not. Would it fit on a floppy? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, One of the things that happened back, I, and I think it was 95, I could be wrong on the date, is when Bill Cheswick first published a map of the internet. Do yep. you guys remember that? Yeah. I remember it, yeah. Yeah, yeah it was at InfoWarCon, and he had these incredible pictures, and and it was like, what is that, Bill? Oh, that's the internet. Yep. And it was absolutely fascinating for him to actually have been able to use a worm, uh, massive pinging on various techniques that might be considered hostile today in order to give us a view of what existed back then. 
And that happened in 2012. It's like where they did the uh, internet survey where the massive uh, botnet did a mapping of the internet. So mm. it's like, uh, I remember that one as well. So back in the, back in the nineties, there used to be a email called the scout report that would give a list of the number of domains on the internet. Mm. Yeah. I remember and that. And the number yeah. of connection points. And that eventually became unwieldy. It's changed. The scout report still exists, but it's something else that, lands in my spam filter now uh, but it was just interesting watching it grow but before that i remember in the mid 80s and before there was a book it was about that thick of everybody on the internet what their computer was what it did what their contact was well and, and i think in, to put that in context real quick back in those days there was no such thing as private addressing no so if you were on the internet you had an ip address or an ip range and it was routable, it was searchable, yeah, right. and it, it was being I mean, proliferated. Is that the right word? Yeah, yeah. And, Every, everything any, that anything public. that you could tap into, and, you had you access know what? It's to a shame, everything. It's a shame we moved away from that. Honestly, network address <laughs> translation is the most abysmal, awful thing ever invented. I agree. Now, Joff, uh, when I started at the university uh, in a security role in 2001... All of the students had internet routing IP addresses. They probably well, still I, do. When yeah. I was, I'm sure you had a similar experience, right? I, I was building big networks all the way up till uh, 2010, 2011, and uh, we were still putting students on the public internet. Yeah. A lot of places were. Yeah. Uh, even to this day, you will find students with their own public IP address uh, because you know a lot of educational institutions and 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 related regional ISPs brought up bought up swaths of, of yeah, uh, yeah. IP space, and they had it to to grant and uh and it's interesting uh, what they would do with it like some students yeah. created entire businesses oh, and it yeah. was frowned upon but i'm like that's kind of cool like <laughs> maybe we should like talk to that person because i i think that's cool right now, i mean right. i you know i think i was lord over two or three class b's at the time yeah I yeah, mean, yeah. Know, so i mean i was boy i wish i still had that <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. when i was administering systems connected mill yet mil the millnet connections were class a addresses mm -hmm. on the imp yep and we had a class b behind it and my 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 employer still has four class Bs and seven class Cs right. plus private routing address space. Do we have that many nodes? No, we just hang mm. on to them. No, but I don't we're think autonomous system 42, 43, and 44. Right. So we're old to the internet by those standards. Look, but IPv4 <laughs> is not really exhausted. It's exhausted from a technical perspective. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I, I've got friends at regional ISPs that, in fact, I actually went to one fairly recently. I said, would you sell me some IP space? He goes, I would, but I'm only selling class Bs. Wow. Oh. And I'm like, how, how much? And I, <laughs> <laughs> and I said, forget about it. Jobs, <laughs> I'm going to have to bring it. in a court consortium of like 100 IT security <laughs> right. folks to, to pull that off. And if anybody's interested, maybe we'll do that. Maybe we'll do uh, let's have a few more beers and talk <laughs> yeah, about yeah, it. Yeah, right? <laughs> um, I, I feel like for the, you know, for the listening audience, we should very quickly just define what class A, class B, class C means, because that's not terminology that's thrown around a lot. You think these here days. on the nineteenth of December that, that that less than geeks are listening to us? <laughs> I'm just, I'm well, just wondering. But this is going to be out there I think it, yeah. Jeff brings up a good point. We've touched on this this year on I think Paul Security Weekly is that as the network becomes more and more a transparent layer, yeah. a lot of this networking knowledge is now left to the wizards of networking, right? Just right. like I called Matt mm -hmm. saying the wizards of finance, right? The wizards of networking. And it's not as critical. It's apps users data, yeah. right? Can are, I do are the we history progressing lesson? To, are we progressing to that to that point? Oh I think I think we are. I think we We're are here already. To, yeah. to to respond to, to Jeff's question though, seeing as I, I was a wizard of networking at Please. one point in my career. 
Uh, a class A network is also considered a, uh, a CIDR uh, notation of a slash eight. Uh, C-I-D-R. Uh, C-I-D-R. Uh, Google it. And uh, it is a boatload of addresses. I can't do the math. Of yeah, I'm trying to do the math. 16,770,214. Yeah, so somewhere north of 16000000 million. A class B is, is masked at slash 16, which is 65,535 addresses. And a class C, which everybody's probably all used to, is... Uh, yeah, also known as a slash 24, yeah. which is uh, all of uh, 256 56. minus broadcast minus whatever. Yep. Um, now, Perfect. what a lot of people don't know, that one of the side effects of IPv4 exhaustion, technical exhaustion, is that the entire internet had to adopt classless uh, routing uh, because people started chopping up the internet into smaller chunks. Right. Mm -hmm. Class A, class B, and class C was was really a favor to the routing software writers and the mm. router vendors to save memory because if you routed traffic on nice classful boundaries you could have a smaller routing information block in the device right. and you didn't have to use all this ram to actually make the forwarding decision now ipv4 exhaustion came along some years back and everybody said well we want to route a slash 27 or a, we want to route a slash 23 or a, mm -hmm. you know slash some 32 some I other that block. Uh, and, and you can do that you can chop these things up but what me what happens is that for autonomous system numbers inside of routing devices uh, you have to allocate memory for those forwarding entries. And the mm -hmm. internet route table jumped from some number, um, and I'm not going to be good at the history here, but there was about 100, 150,000 routes, and it jumped to north of 450,000 routes at about that transition. Is that because it largely was designed just to connect schools and government entities and ARPANET? That, that's right. I mean, the, there was the big adoption in the 90s of the internet becoming very commercialized, mm. uh, and that also added to that pressure. Um, but uh, the classless routing is frankly uh, a disaster for, you know, from you route know what resources makes you feel and cost old? perspective. Uh, I was getting a new license and uh, talking about computers with this. She was processing, and I said, Yeah, I started programming when I was seven. She's like, Oh, I didn't know they had computers back then. I thought that all started in the 90s. Wow. The internet, right? wow. So I'm like, wow. I'm did, really did, old. Thanks did, for did that. Al Gore say something about that? <laughs> well, I don't know what happened if we showed up. <laughs> Yeah. Um, I, it, there's uh, three areas that I'm excited to talk about in this segment. And the first is the history of antivirus. And I think all of us have heard from the folks that believe computers were invented when the Internet became popular in the 90s, right? When they hear of antivirus software, the first logical from, you know, normal smart people that you talk to that aren't in uh, security or networking, uh, they say, well, shouldn't the uh, antivirus companies create viruses right and it's always been like a theory um mm -hmm. we traced some of the first viruses already uh the antivirus industry uh i traced back to 1987 uh with mcafee mm -hmm. uh being one of the first ones right um and g data software the first to market with the ultimate virus killer 2000 <laughs> shortly followed by mcafee's virus scan uh interesting how we go from that to where we are today well, Amazing how, where McAfee has gone to where he is today. <laughs> yeah, <that's true. laughs> I think that's an entirely different discussion. Yeah. Yeah. Although, no, yeah. that, that discussion, I think I've, both of them have gone completely off the rails. Yeah, mm. yeah. yeah actually, that's a lot of truth to that statement. Both the antivirus and um, the individual. If you ever have a chance, go back to uh, when McAfee first started getting fame. 
there was a profile of him in People magazine with him laid out on a bed with his white cat. That makes perfect sense now, Wynn. It actually. does today. It does today. <laughs> make sense, but then, no. Uh, you, so I, is there, is, I'm sorry, is there evidence, does anyone, has ever, anyone ever presented evidence that antivirus companies created malware, or is that just a fable? There was a discussion back in 90, I'm picking a year, and part of the antivirus bulletin, I'm trying to go back to those years, there was a discussion about using viruses for good. Today, we call it auto-update and what have you. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. But back in those days, it was maybe we can fix the networks and keep everything alive and well if corporations distribute their own viruses. Uh, that debate lasted less than a year. Yeah. yeah. Well, and then you had instances of that over history, the mm -hmm. lion worm being one, right? And where it was a virus for good, but people were still prosecuted for that. Yep. Which is yeah, and, so, and Paul, I know in the, in show history we've at least talked about it once. That oh my gosh, there's talk that antivirus companies make their own viruses to sell their products because fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Mm -hmm. uh, but now that uh, now they don't need to, right? right? I mean, there's enough malware out there. Oh, yeah. 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 So there was, they, they actually do because a lot of the antivirus engines out there today are AI and ML based, and if you just submit a certain class of antivirus or virus Another drinking offense. you know you can train their model to go the other way yeah yeah, yeah. misdirect the model make the child behave badly so, so mm -hmm. it used yeah. to used to be that they you know you the antivirus to signatures were distributed to a group you had to be a member of the group they were distributed in uh encrypted form the signatures yep. and you had a certain time to just to uh, distribute them so there was no time to do analysis on the on the signatures you just had to push them out and if you didn't do them timely you were kicked out and if you're mcafee or semantic or one of those you, you didn't want to get kicked out one of the big members of the uh of the consortium uh and had a, had a controlling interest produced no signatures was not an american company but was controlling the consortium so there was a lot of contention that this and i will not name them that they were using that to create malware as larry was hinting before uh, I think that model is out the window, yeah. but at that time, it was a great conversation to have in certain certain circles. So, so it strikes me that, that the conversation's a difficult one to have because if you look at operating system technology, um, you know, over the last uh, 20, 30 years, it has changed significantly. When you, when you move from a model when we had monolithic uh, uh, binaries that were statically compiled to a model where you have a lot of dynamic code running, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and, and I don't care what the operating system is, whether it's a Unix kernel, BSD-based, uh, Linux-based, whether it's a, a, a Windows kernel, you know, the fact that you can dynamically push code into other objects that are running on the system changed the landscape radically in terms of the, the harm that could be uh, inflicted uh, by various malware and also proliferate uh, proliferated the um, the diversity of, of the malware to such a point where where the, in fact the traditional AV model as we came came to know it would not scale anymore mm. um, so you know that that makes it a very very tough to, uh, discussion to have because the landscape is incredibly diverse and, and and just massive now do do you guys all remember dr. Gene Schultz we yes. do oh yeah. Yep. Um, yep. Dear, dear, dear friend, and one of the final discussions that he and I had at some at RSA, he made this comment, and it has stuck with me ever since. And he goes, after a few drinks, uh, he says, "For the life of me, 
I do not understand why operating system manufacturers can't build a self-repellent OS. Mm. Yeah, that sounds like Gene. Yeah, <laughs> that's Gene. I used to work with him. I had the honor of working with him many, many or years ago. Or even self-defending in some yeah. respects, right? It doesn't right. have to be self-repellent, but could it be self-defending? Yeah. I, well, that also goes back to when you were talking about the viruses early on. Don't forget, I think it was 1991 when they started really coming about. Mark Ludwig wrote a book called The Virus Creation Laboratory and distributed all the software for free. Whoa. Cool. Now, wasn't there yeah, also a case really in, dark now. in that time I, I frame? I got a copy that, up here, too. <laughs> <laughs> wasn't there a time uh, somewhere in the 90s that, that uh, or maybe it was even the 2000s, that McAfee accidentally tagged Office as a virus and then started uh, taking it off of systems until yeah. they updated their they, They've done that there with uh, part of the Windows uh, internal uh, DLLs. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say, just going to say yeah. that. Yep. So it's not a unique case. Yeah, no, I mean, that, that, case. Huh? that exactly supports what i'm talking but about with, i think with it makes it code. if yeah. we talk about a self-defending operating system it makes it harder to write and run software legitimate software on the operating system what was really interesting to me is that the early pdp hackers pdp one uh <laughs> days right they uh were looking at the ctss system on the ibm mainframe and were like that's that's uh, opposite of the hacker spirit the hacker culture mm -hmm. they created their own time sharing system uh, and they had to be convinced to do this because they thought time sharing was a complete waste of time. Why would you split the processing of the computer between users? A user should be able to use all of the processing power in the computer. And the only way they convinced uh, the hackers to create this was the hacker said, look, we want to like at midnight when we're the only people that are using the computer, boot it into single user mode. Oh. which I, I could trace back to like the first occurrence of single user mode, right? But it was to use all the computing power. And they developed a time sharing system that operated during the day that it um, was completely open. In other words, the other time sharing systems would try and prevent users from doing bad things like shutting down the system, right? Mm -hmm. In the hacker's time sharing system, the shutdown command anyone could run it. The novelty wore off immediately yeah. <laughs> and we're all run, you know, working together to run software on the operating system. I think that may be why operating system vendors have not put those barriers in to be able to run software on the operating system because it could prevent legitimate software. But back when, back when that timeshare operating system was written, it was fairly easy to write an operating system. And we when we were doing supercomputers back in those days, we had our national laboratory timeshare. Yeah, there was only three system. or four computing platforms right. at the time. Right? NLTO right. five. Yeah, NSA five. had their own. Yeah, yeah. and uh, because the the hardware would arrive and all it would do was run the benchmark, and it wouldn't actually be useful. So we had to write our own operating. <laughs> you system. had to write your own. So yeah, <laughs> nowadays supercomputers run yeah. on Linux. It's kind of like I mean, here's, yeah. here's the here's <laughs> the uh, here's your new computer. Yeah. Oh, the, the software box. That's that's the QA <laughs> consisted. The, the QA consisted of proving that the that the benchmark ran and it was up. To but, spec. but that carried that was, forward into the PC in the Altair. You had to write did. your own software for it. It did. Right? That's right. Oh. You had to key in your software with dip switches on the right. front of the machine. Yeah, <laughs> been there, yeah. done that. So, oh, yeah, now right. we need to explain you know what, what a dip old? switch is. Was. <laughs> switch binary switches, right? In, in octal or something like it was. It was octal. It was. Yeah. It was horrible, right? From uh, it it sucked at best. Right, but I mean <laughs> that's what spawned the, the PC revolution was. So, making computers that people could 
buy and start using without having to yep. write their own operating system and or something. Well, uh, arguably, the uh, the spreadsheet really spawned the whole thing. Agreed. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Now, we have examples. iOS is a good example mm-hmm. of a, a which operating I, system. Which iOS? I, oh, this, not Cisco's. Apple's. Okay. Okay. Where you have some protections where you can't mm-hmm. cross over certain it's, boundaries it's in a, the OS. It's a, it's a, it's a closed system. Wall, wall, it wall is. Garden. It's a closed system. But... I know Apple's been working on aspects of this for the Mac OS mm-hmm. as well. Right. Um, there's been of, discussions about... Kernel, loader, kernel loadable modules are going to be gone in the next significant release right. of Mac OS. And so what there's they're, a reason they're why zero days for iOS are a million bucks. Yeah. yeah. Right. But why isn't we ever can write one and get that million bucks? <laughs> you're well, you're Apple, Apple set the bar pretty high, <laughs> arguably. They did. They set yeah. it very high. And, and so what you're seeing is what happened in... Uh, Apple iOS coming into Mac OS uh, is going to potentially create an environment where you have a self-defending operating system because it's not going to allow cross-border connections and and allow uh, a virus or something to actually take over the machine because it can contain itself and protect itself. So we're starting to see that evolution. We're not there yet, but I think we will see that in our lifetime anyways Mm -hmm. of operating systems improving to the point where they are more self-defending than they ever have been. So my question on that, and I love the idea of a self-defending operating system, is what will acceptance be like? Uh, Just last week uh, was... I think it was the 11th of December. Don't quote me on that. Whatever that Tuesday was, was the last patches forever for Windows Mobile 10. Tim knows 10 mobiles. Excuse me, get in the right order. Pretty and soon for remember, Windows Server 2008. Man, what 7. am I going to do with my phone now? <laughs> no, but what I was, where I was going with this is, if you remember the Windows Mobile platform, it was very closed down. There was only a couple of development environments for creating code for it. I'm looking at Joff and Larry because they've spent more time in this space than I have. And yet, you know, I believe that the, you know, Bill Gates claims he didn't cl- didn't own the mobile space because he was three months late to market. And I claim he claimed the he glamour was, he was, was distracted by the antitrust lawsuit. Yes, and all. In a yeah, article it, it, exactly. Yeah. Yes. And my thinking was, well, yeah, but also I think there was a big clamor for an open operating system that wasn't locked down, which is what the Android operating system is. Yeah. And I just yeah. wondered if I'm yeah. unique in that opinion. Or I, 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 no, I, don't, I, 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 I think also some of the true. development issues for the platform was also a problem too, mm. given that it was, at the time, it was fairly easy to either write for Android and move to iOS or iOS and move to Android. Yet to try to port that to Windows Mobile was a freaking nightmare. Like I remember yeah. teasing one of my friends who got Darren from back mm-hmm. way back in Security Weekly History that he got a windows mobile phone and like he didn't have angry birds for six months after everyone else on the planet did oh because they literally had to rewrite it i think that's what killed it i I want to just change gears quick um and go to the history and evolution of intrusion detection i will defer to our esteemed guest mr ron gula uh in this as i was evaluating intrusion detection systems which is how i learned of Mr. Ron Gula and the Dragon IDS system back in the day. Well, where's Mike Poor when you need him, though? Mm, right? Mean, you know. <laughs> oh, he is one of the historians, <laughs> yes. Um, hey, before we talk about that, I will tell you that one of the reasons Tenable was successful is that we actually had people who would create vulnerabilities and pay people to implant them. Into- <laughs> 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 yeah. Well played, sir. Well played. It works. So, Own it. When I was at uh, NSA with, uh, with, with Jeff, I, I had the benefit of working uh, kind of as, as, a, as, as a mentee, I guess, with Becky base 
and uh, Becky yeah. ran yeah. in the same group as, as Dorothy Denning and Peter Newman and 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 whatnot. And they sort of wrote the books and textbooks on intrusion detection. And um, many many years after I left the NSA, I I was working with ISS Real Secure, and uh, sorry, I was deploying it and couldn't really change the rules. And I said, you know, this Linux thing's a new thing. Let's write uh, let's write a system. And and um, you know, ended up writing Dragon, starting a company that kind of would got me started in that but i ended up doing that competing against marcus Raynham at network flight recorder mm -hmm. uh you know bob graham at network ice uh you know then, then iss after that um you know Mar marty was a, a good friend and and uh, you know he was doing snort back then but that's that's kind of why i'm probably missing like a bunch of people who were doing code back then but it was it was um fun stuff and, and talking about the steven northcutt was at the Navy, and there was a lot of IDS development at the Navy. Yeah, so it was one of the research labs. Shadow, Shadow, Shadow right? IDS, which was basically TCP dump with yeah. scripts, looking for collect. It was the first real like network security monitoring um, type type of approach. And and uh, you know back then, I mean, there wasn't it wasn't like you get a span port on on Ethernet. So you're you're tapping coax, you're tapping mm -hmm. um, you know a lot of different uh, mediums to kind of get the packets and and, and log them. Um, a lot of hackers were coding with libpcap, mm -hmm. you know, just to kind of look at 10 megabit, 100 megabit networks mm -hmm. back then. And that was very exciting times. But that, it's it's really changed a lot these last yeah. um, 20 years. Because we say intrusion detection. What we're talking about in history is network intrusion detection, right? Yep. Intrusion detection can be a much more overarching term. Yeah, so back, back then, you know, your Unix systems would have really good auditing on them. And you could do like RACF on your mainframes mm -hmm. and, and that. But if you said, hey, the Windows event log. You know, yeah. this is the world before Sysmon, before Sim, before, yeah. you know, kernel level monitoring. This is well before like a carbon black type of uh, type of solution on endpoints. Uh, the Windows computers didn't even have it back then. So you could you really couldn't do anything better than like antivirus on the endpoint. Right. And, and the attacks were over the network it, in yep. this time. Yep. Right. Yep. Largely remote exploits and vulnerabilities. Yeah. yeah. Well, and you could get away with a bunch of stuff. And there was. You know, since you're looking at the network and trying to kind of reconstruct everything, there was all sorts of amazing things you had to handle, like overlapping fragments. If I'm attacking yeah. a Windows computer and a Linux computer, mm -hmm. I can do an attack. And if I know it's a Windows computer, I can sequence the packets a certain way that a network IDS might not see it and completely bypass that. So that's um, that's pretty neat stuff. And the complexity there, you actually had vulnerabilities and stuff like Snort where you could do like an SMB attack and actually break into the actual Snort yeah. machine, which, which is a re those. really interesting thing to get your head around. Yep. I think what's kind of amusing in the history too is people forget that uh, that that TCP/IP networking to Windows was a bolt-on. Yeah. yeah. But like <laughs> Winsock came to Windows much later than than you know yeah. Unix systems had had a full TCP stack. So yeah. I, so I yeah I, I remember Windows three one and having to bolt on a third party TCP/IP stack yep. from Chameleon. Novell was a similar kind of thing. Novell was a right. thing, right. You know, right. and, and so yeah, um, and also to to Ron's point, uh, you know, uh, fragmentation reassembly policies. Um, uh, you know that <laughs> I, I, I teach this stuff in my class uh, at a, at a section towards towards the end of the week, and um, and people go, well, why would why would people reassemble packets in different orders from these <laughs> different vendors, and 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 they want to know some sort of logical reason and i'm like because the developer just made that decision it was right. completely yes. arbitrary yes. decision and it led to all yeah. sorts of attacks in fact jeremiah you and i were talking about the smurf attack which i remembered yeah. as icmp based you actually experienced one of these attacks early on 
so my <clears throat> my very first job in information security was uh, January 10th of 2000, just after Y2K. I got a job over at Yahoo. And uh, I think it was a several months later, we experienced the first ever Smurf attack, major DDoS attack that took down, if you remember the history, uh, eBay, uh, Amazon, and Yahoo first. Yep. And uh, no one had seen anything like it. Our big Cisco firewalls went down and things like that. And it was just a large scale ICMP attack, but it was a first of its kind. And the FBI was calling us, all the engineers from the other companies were calling us, how we were dealing with it. It was a... Uh, it was like all of a sudden, just very early in my career, thrust into the big leagues. I'm like, what this stuff is all about. Mm. Of course, Dragon had signatures for the Smurf attack shortly. Yeah. And many IDSs did, right, shortly there, thereafter. Yeah, and then almost immediately after that, like another rule to kind of suppress the alerts if you detect it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. The first introduction of the comfort of false negatives. Since <laughs> <laughs> we're talking, talking and about you know, we're still we're still fighting that. I mean, one of the things we did with uh, with Dragon is this is how we kind of met Renault for, for for Tenable is we could load in a Nessa scan and you could then uh, you know remove attacks for Linux that were going to Windows systems and mm -hmm. and, and try to do that that, that triage. And, you know, some people really, really, but we're still fighting that fight today. That's the whole SOAR industry. Like, how do I do triage and false yeah. positives and enrichment and whatnot? It's it's really tough. I feel like I we really should give we an honorable. I really need to have the, the hostile bit in, in packets. The and, evil and, bit, and, yeah. Yeah, RFC 3514, right? There you I go. Mean, mm -hmm. We just should mm -hmm. use it, man. Yeah. Uh, I feel <laughs> like we should give an honorable mention, and Ron would ask, you know, to what degree it played a role in the development of Dragon, but uh, I remember, gosh, it was late 90s, 97, 98 or so, Tom Tachek put out the the what I think was the seminal paper on evading intrusion detection. Mm. I'll oh, see you in here. I thought you were going to say IDS is dead. No, no that was later. <laughs> that, that was later. later. So, so what that, was the time for that, that paper? Uh, yeah, so that was really, so that was SNI, right? Secure Networks Incorporated was, the, yep. I think, the company. Yep. And they had done a lot of really good uh, research. In this one, there was about eight or nine techniques, and it was everything from the packet fragment, IP, IP layer packet reassemblies, all the mm. way down to uh, uh, TCP windows. Um, and I think uh, they also did application layer stuff. So like the, the way you can take a, like a, a period in a URL and expand it to like percent two F or two E, I, I, I forget offhand, yeah. which, which you can actually recurse, which is just crazy. Um, and, and, but yeah, that really, really impacted that, that market. And the thing that came out as a winner from that was bro. Cause mm. at the time, Vern Paxson, the guy, he was the guy I was trying to remember before mm. a lot of the original bro. He's the uh, bro applets, developer. Yeah. 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 Uh, a, a lot of those things were looking for responses because, cause he was like, look, the attack coming in, you know, the attacker, you don't know what's going to happen, but if you see the Etsy password file, you know, being served on, uh, you know, a, a, a website, you know, something bad, you know, yeah, right. is, is happens. So look for that. And uh, so that that really was that whole thing was very influential at the time. Of how to what can you see? What can you what can you find? Uh, same thing. You could do very stealthy um, port scans, port sweeps, very slow. But if you track all that and you, you go, you kind of keep state on that kind of stuff, you can find uh, that stuff. And, you know, finding somebody who's trying to attack you and evading. Talk about a certain level of a technique. Uh, that that was pretty cool back then to, to find that in the late 90s. Now, what's interesting, the final topic that I wanted to discuss, which I thought was an easier question to answer. It's not. <laughs> when I did research for some of my presentations uh, in the past year or so, was who invented the firewall? Mm. <laughs> there is no like definitive answer to this. Checkpoint. Is there? 
<laughs> you got, you got to kind of give it to Chadwick Boseman, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's Jeremiah. I was taught. I was taught it was Marcus Random. That's the lore I always heard right? growing yeah. up. Yeah. And he will. De- he will defer. I, I. I. think we could almost equally award it to Cheswick uh, Bellavan and yeah. Marcus Random, perhaps. Uh, but it uh, sounds like there was development in a similar we, time. We right? had Steve Bellavan on the show. I mean, we did. It, it, it'd be lovely to have him back to answer Bill, that question. Bill Cheswick too. Uh, yeah, both of them years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I, I love that discussion on the evil bit. That was my favorite part of ever ever yeah. of the show. So. Right. Yeah. So this may have been before I think Paul and Jeff, you guys were at Tenable, but but when we were smaller, Marcus ran a lot of our training and we had a holiday, you know, all, all hands. And we would try to play these games to get like the technical people and the non-technical people together. And that who um uh you phone a friend, you know, that kind of that kind of game was 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 out there. Who wants to be a millionaire? But we did all these tenable and cyber questions and stuff like that. And honest to God, I got a sales guy. The question was, who invented the firewall? And he goes, well, I'm going to call on Marcus Random. And he said, well, I, I did invent it. So I thought that was a hilarious <laughs> comment. <laughs> I, rem- I remember hearing about this from Paul back in the day. Yeah, I, was, was I was at that one. Yeah, yes. exactly. I was at yeah, that one. Why, yes. yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. the other question is, what do you mean by firewall when you talk about inventing it? I mean, when I started in 89, the firewall was basically a port filter. You know, you'd allow traffic on these ports only. And now you've got you know, a whole lot more to it. I mean, they it's it's really amazing. Yeah, so there is a distinction between just a packet filter and a stateful yeah. device. Right. Yep. The first devices yeah. were really Solaris devices that had two NICs in them. Yeah, right. right. Well, yeah, well, I mean, that was actually, that was how internet routing was well, working, the first frankly, device. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So so any packet filter was just an ACL applied to it. I guess we would say the stateful, yeah. the stateful firewall, right? The stateful firewall, yes. I think, would be the way to put it. Mm-hmm. Uh, all the bolt-on features that came after that, where they turned into into IPSs, yeah. right? Uh, Certainly very different today. And layer seven ap- application firewalls? Oh my God, where's my dream? So, yeah. But I think firewall today toolkit. is like your IAM user systems. groups, right? right? In Amazon's cloud is really your <laughs> firewall, right? right? Is right. doing the, in the cloud. I had an epiphany, I don't know, maybe two years ago. Only one? Uh, well, <laughs> one of the epiphanies that I had. Did it have three letters in it? I'm just wondering. Uh, it was probably related, but. <laughs> I was thinking about the firewalls and and just sort of the whole uh, way that this industry has evolved. And in the early days, because a lot of the practitioners were coming out of the DOD, a lot of the mindset was perimeter protection. Mm. You know, just protect the network because you're plugging into the Internet now. That's where all the evil is. In fact, early depictions of the Internet uh, were on on a network diagram were simply the cloud. And you don't know what's happening in the cloud. And I thought, you know, this whole mindset of protect the perimeter, which has largely gone away or largely been proven false, right. ties back a lot to, well, let's let's throw in a product. Let's throw in a firewall. So I, I, I had a conversation with Marcus and I simply asked him, do you ever regret having invented the firewall? He's like, well, I didn't invent it. And I said, yeah, but. And, and he pretty much agreed. Yeah, it's, it's, it, it, it did contribute to this mindset that we've gone down this path for 20, 25 years of, oh, well, let's just protect the perimeter and we're good. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, uh, the, the, the operating question today is where is the perimeter, right? Right. I don't, I don't think the perimeter as a concept is, is, is a bad concept. Uh, I think the perimeter is right around your application today or individual micro layers yeah. of your application. It is, the, the whole castle and moat kind of model, yeah, that's gone. It's way gone. It should be gone. If people mm-hmm. are still thinking that way, I feel bad for them. Um, yeah, I, I hesitate to use the term firewall in a lot of 
context, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, yes, here we have an internet I don't connection. Like the term. I don't right? like the we, term we have an internet connection uh, here and we have a firewall, but when you're deploying applications or have users roaming around, yes, maybe they have a host based firewall, which is somewhat different from what we were describing earlier, right? right. Uh, but also when you look at what's in the cloud, it's about the controls and protections that you configure in the cloud. What has trust to talk to what? And that's that's really not a, what we would typically think of as a stateful firewall. Well, right? and, and and the model uh, the model is 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 set for radical change. Um, you know, even in the past couple of years, but even you know going forward in the next next decade or so. I mean, you you know, you're going to see a level of of uh, micro segmentation at application layers. You're right. going to see very tight communication. Uh, entities be invented between client and server that that nothing can actually touch that traffic flow. It's going to change so much. Mm. No, I think uh, the point that yeah. was made about the word trust is absolutely key. Because yeah. we talk about risk, we talk about all of the technical stuff, but we even back in the old fortress mentality days, the concept of trust is something that I think our industry has forgotten about mm. as a very fundamental element and how do we look at networks at applications at human beings because we've got people we got cyber we got physical now and what is that element of trust and how do we coordinate those three pieces together to create something meaningful and how do we verify and then trust yeah. well, that zero trust is you know it speaks to that uh, that point. Yeah, that, that, the zero trust term makes me throw up my mouth a little bit too. But, um, <laughs> Thank well, you. Well, it became, <laughs> agree, but agreed. It became a buzz term. Well, I, I, I think that was an attempt to encapsulate a new model beyond the castle and moat. Mm. And I, I like all the new technology solutions and way we can, we can, you know, harden at the lowest level, only allow authorized connections. What really concerns me, though, is the amount of inertia that has to be overcome in order to imp- implement it. I'm reminded, going back to earlier, we, you know. When EMV credit cards were created in Europe, they rolled them out. You didn't use a signature. You used your PIN with the card, and the, the, the PIN unlocked the chip on the card, and you were verified. Mm-hmm. The, bank, the issuers in America said, Americans can't handle a PIN with a card to get money. <laughs> Yeah. Or make a purchase. But we do it with our ATMs all the time. Knock that shit off. <laughs> I'm just <laughs> saying. I said the same damn thing. But we still come down to these and concepts, I, right? We were talking about the uh, capital, the capital right. One. It always uh, rolls around scenario. to PCI. Just well, saying. No, but I, I was trying not, <laughs> rather than rolling to PCI, which is valid, I was thinking, how do you overcome the inertia? How do you get ba- past the misconceptions that Americans can't use an ATM with a PIN? I mean, credit card with a PIN. Um, how do you get past the I can't? roll those changes and get rid of that moat that to me is the challenge i mean i think there are some cases for traditional hard security separations for devices with little to no security but the rest of the stuff let's change the model let's do it right but the effectiveness of the firewall goes out the window as soon as you create a rule to allow something true to your point there you're talking about the inertia of acceptance of something what about how long do you allow that trusted connection to be trusted Mm. or is there a trust degradation over time how long do you trust it that's what happened with humans hansen uh the the spies that occur everywhere with um a's airs whatever the guy named from cia Mm. how long do you trust that connection after you've made it and unless you put a dynamic system into there to do a reevaluation of that initial trust we're back to approaching infinity and trust and waiting for something bad to happen. 
Mm. Yeah. But yeah. do we have the technology to do that? I well, tend to think we, have, we do. We do. Yeah, there are aspects of those models out there today. They're not well yeah. adopted. But, um, but Matt but read the book. Yeah. We do. I, you, know, <laughs> you, you finally read the book? I've read parts of the book. I haven't okay, finished okay. it yet. I, 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 the Cliff Notes version went. Yeah. I looked at all the pictures. <laughs> I, I, I think. <laughs> I think with communication security, which is was where we started here, we yeah. we do have the technology that is, um, and we've interviewed several vendors on the show. In fact, that talk to micro segmentation, that yeah. talk to dynamic, yeah. adaptable firewalls to software based application conditions. That's to, where it has to, to go. To user application controls. Uh, around right. that micro segmentation discussion, because we were talking about the perimeter, right. I, I you know instead of you, the static moat model, right? right. Instead right. of a static moat model, it, this is this revolves around identity, mm-hmm. yep. uh, and its access or its ability to access applications and data at the end of the day, right? right. right. Networks a transport layer, um, but it still goes back to the user and their identity and how they interact with applications. That's where we're going to solve aspects of this. I think longer term. And we're just starting to see some of the innovation coming in that space. Yeah. Well, Gentlemen, I, I, I love I, I, this I discussion. Th- uh, all right, Jason, why don't you, closing thoughts? Uh, my closing thought is, is just right when he was talking about that, it's like, do you hear how we're all talking about the same thing that as through history is like when we first talked about the first thing, it's like, it's the whole thing is like, when are we going to actually change? When is this actually going to be historical instead of talking about current events that happened, you know, 20 years ago, but could have <laughs> totally happened yesterday. Yeah. It's like the same kind of different of attacks that happened a uh, hundred years ago. Could have, uh, we could be talking about it. You know, that's something that happened today, wireless technology, the telegraph, uh, all these different things that are still going on. And one of the common denominators, we still, cause it still involves humans. It's like, when are we going to like start approaching that, we, we haven't progressed that much. We need to actually start working on, instead of talking about the stuff in the historical record, it's like, what are we actually doing to actually fix the stuff currently that's been broken and that hasn't been fixed for the last, you know, thousand and million years? What's awesome about that, Jason, is you also describe the time travel in Endgame. But, <laughs> gentlemen, <laughs> thank you so much uh, for doing this panel discussion uh, with us today. I hope our audience uh, learned a lot from it, and some of our newer audience uh, was exposed to some of the history, uh, and we learned from some of the lessons. So, everyone, thank you very much, and that will conclude this segment. <laughs>